Hey there, welcome to night school. I'm having some issues with my mixer here. It may have been an issue with the power supply, I don't know. I'll save you the details, but... You know, everything, it kind of fits with what I'm about to talk about. It actually fits perfectly. I'm finding more and more that despite the fact that it's easy to produce technology now and some technology is getting cheaper, it's just so poorly made. And that's such an old guy talking point, but it's so true. Where I'm thinking about this last computer I bought. You know, it was one of the cheaper laptops because I don't really have, I don't play video games. I don't do a lot that's that. That requires that much CPU power. But I'm just finding that things are so poorly made. Anyway, I'm going to go on here. Today I spent the day reading, rereading, re re rereading Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. First time I've read it start to finish in a long time. I've revisited it, revisited it, re 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 revisited it. A number of times over the years. I think I read it the first time about 20 years ago when I was a teenager. And at the, t- at the time that I first read it, it was one of those epiphanous moments where reading it, it put to words many thoughts that I was just developing at the time. I'm not going to say I thought all of that through. I'm not going to say I had all of those thoughts in my head that Ted Kaczynski addressed in his manifesto. But epiphanies for me, as I've explained before, they're rarely a feeling of completely new thoughts coming to me. Very rarely is an epiphany an experience where I go, wow, I never thought of that. Can you believe that? I never thought. Normally an epiphany to me is when somebody puts to words something that I was feeling but didn't quite have the words for myself yet. I find that more and more. It's one of the reasons why a cliche or a platitude, you can ignore it your whole life. You can hear a cliche or a platitude your whole life, but suddenly it hits you in the right way. And it's not that it's a new idea. It's that you're experiencing a new sensation related to that idea. And so that was my experience when I first read Ted Kaczynski's manifesto as a teenager, because at the time I already had misgivings about leftism. I certainly... I was certainly questioning technological progress and what that meant. I came from a family that had strong environmental values. But it was around the time that I was realizing that, oh, I'm definitely not a leftist. Because up until that point, I had taken leftism for granted, you could say. That might not be the best way to put it, but... For our purposes here, it is. And it was around the time that I was realizing that, for example, punk music wasn't for me. You know, when I look back, I'm like, oh, I must have been into punk for five years. The reality is I was probably into punk for about a year. But everything moves so fast, and a year means a lot when you're that age. When you're 15 years old, a year of your life is a lot. And so punk music, which I won't go on at length about here, what I was looking for from punk music was raw and rough music. But as I got into it, I realized that the ideas, the political ideas, were not for me. 
the perspective that they were offering wasn't for me. It doesn't mean that I denounced all punk music. I think it has its place. I think it was necessary. And some people did it very well. Whether I agreed with them or not, as I've said many times, including recently, my interest in music and art doesn't mean agreeing with it. It means finding it interesting, and I believe there is interesting punk music, significantly less than other music I'm interested in, is what I realized. But there are people who did it well, and I'm glad it existed. I say that in the past tense, not to, not because not because punk's not around, but I don't even know how to interpret it today, and I'd rather not. I'd just rather not. So I read Ted Kaczynski's manifesto around the time that I was realizing leftism wasn't what I thought it was, because the reason why I sort of defaulted to leftism as a kid, and I do mean as a kid, because I grew up in a household where my mom and my sister were both liberal. My mom wasn't particularly political, but my sister was involved in environmentalism, heavily involved in environmentalism. And through that, I would say she's, she was never particularly involved in social politics, but she became very close to some of the local Native American tribes and worked with them and advocated for them. And she went to the Evergreen State College before I did, a leftist stronghold. So it was around me. And because I had an interest in music and art, and free speech, even back then, I was well aware of the importance of free speech. I, I just sort of took for granted that those ideas were associated with leftism, and I found out they weren't. And I look at my dad as a great example of the way that these ideas aren't bundled together. As I've mentioned before, we sort of assume that the ideas that are currently being championed by a given political cause, political group, we tend to think of them as, well, of course, environmentalism? That's a leftist cause. It's not, though. Environmentalism is not a leftist cause. And I've always known that because my dad is an environmentalist. One of the more, I mean, in terms of putting your money where your mouth is, and he doesn't do a lot of talking, so a lot, he's putting a lot more money up than he is words his entire life. He's a conservative, though. He's an eccentric conservative, but my dad is a conservative, and I, and I didn't know that about him. I didn't acknowledge that. I didn't, well, I, I didn't acknowledge it because it was never stated. He didn't talk about politics. He was a small business owner, and occasionally he would make a comment here or there about regulation, or taxes, but I didn't care about that. But I didn't know my dad identified more as a conservative until I was close to adulthood. 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 I did know that he was an environmentalist. And I hate to even call him that. I hate to call anybody that. An ist. Basically, he values nature. He believes in the conservation of nature. He believes in a, as harmonious of a relationship with nature as a human being can uphold. I knew that about him, and that was passed on to all three of his kids, myself included. But he's a conservative, too, so 
I grew up knowing that that particular cause, even though it's bundled with other leftist causes, and admittedly leftists talk about it much more than conservatives. Leftists emphasize the environment and nature much more than conservatives do, to their credit. Although I don't always agree with the way they do it and the way they frame it, they do talk about it more. But it's not tied to them. And I knew that because of my dad. Because I knew what my dad's values were, and I knew that his environmentalism was not inconsistent with his conservative outlook. And I think my dad's like me in the sense that he would prefer not to have a political viewpoint. I think he begrudgingly takes on political views sometimes because he feels there's no choice. And that's how I feel. But through him, I knew that these ideas weren't dependent on one political platform or another. And so I started to grow, I had this growing resentment toward leftism when I realized that, oh, I assumed that it was this. Because things I like are typically created by people who seem to be on the left at the very least. But when I became a teenager and a different part of my brain was activated, when I learned a little bit more about the world, I realized that I wanted nothing to do with leftism. And being interested in true crime... That's what led me to looking into the Unabomber, as far as I know, as far as I can remember. I just, I was curious who he was and what he was all about. And I've always been interested when a killer or controversial figure has done a piece of writing or expressed himself, I've always been interested in reading it. And so I think I knew the basics about the Unabomber. I knew the basics about Ted Kaczynski, his general story. But I decided to sit down and actually read his manifesto. And it was an epiphanous moment for me because his criticism of leftism is so objective. He manages to achieve a level of objectivity in that it's not just a bitter personal rant. He nails it. He put to words what I was feeling at that time. He put, to wor- he put many things to words that I was feeling at the time 20 years ago as a teenager to the point where many of the statements he makes almost word for word in his manifesto are permanently burned into my brain. And as I was reading it again today, nothing surprised me and I had this constant feeling of deja vu. And, you know, I'm not going to give any any disclaimers. I think most people who listen to this show, whoever listens to this show, is well aware of my approach to that. That I believe you can discuss a man's writing regardless of what that man did or didn't do. And there's no need to give a disclaimer. Oh, you know, I don't agree with him. I I don't agree with blowing up a computer salesman. I don't agree with sending bombs to random strangers. I don't need to make disclaimers like that to discuss a man's writing. But let me just put a little context on that. You know, you think about what just happened a few months ago, and nobody's talking about it anymore, of course. But when the USA, the USA, left Afghanistan, the stand of Afghani, we left with the, the perfect exclamation point. 
which is a drone strike that killed an innocent man and a bunch of children. And then we were lied to and told it was an ISIS insurgent. Turned out it wasn't. It turns out it was an innocent man and a bunch of children. And they even admitted that, quietly admitted it, after lying. It turns out they knew otherwise right after it happened. But they lied and, and said otherwise. And more people died in that drone strike than Ted Kaczynski killed. Yet people are still listening to Jabama bin Biden. People are still listening to his administration. They're still listening to the journalists who provided cover for that story. So I have no guilt about reading Ted Kaczynski's writings and even valuing them. If we live in a society, and that drone strike, that's just, that's one of countless. I mean, if you're willing to listen to our government officials and take their words even slightly seriously, knowing what our government does, knowing what our leaders sign off on, knowing the horrors that are committed under the supervision of our leaders, while still listening to their press conferences, There's no reason to even split hairs about the words of someone like Ted Kaczynski. But I also don't need to support what he did either. Here's a, that's a little bit, of, that's a, the most disclaimer I'm going to give. But I don't believe in having to give a disclaimer just, just to discuss someone's ideas. And as he himself says in his writing, as he says in the manifesto, you wouldn't be reading this if we hadn't killed people. He refers to himself plural because he's claiming to be part of this imaginary club called the Freedom Club. But he, uh, you know, he killed people. And that is the reason why I even know his manifesto exists. As he says in, the, in the, his writing, he says, this would have never been published or if it had, it would have been lost in academic obscurity if we hadn't killed people. So he's well aware of the fact that killing people is what got his message out. Do I agree wholly with it? No. I have some views that quite obviously conflict with his. I think technology is a manifestation of nature. Not always a good one. Nature produces horror. Nature produces terrible things. Carnivores, poison, rape. Animal on animal rape. Disease, starvation. I could go on forever about the horrors of nature. I believe technology is another manifestation of, of nature. And as I was talking about last year, you know, even the smartphone or as I call it, the nature phone, because even the phone is a manifestation of nature. Even the smartphone, to me, is natural. But we should contend with it in the same way that we contend with anything nature produces. It's not like nature is a wonderland. And so that informs my belief that technology is nature, too. And in Ted Kaczynski's writing, he makes a heavy distinction between technology and nature. But he might have thought more about it that he simply didn't want to include. He might not have wanted to talk about nature phones. 
he was looking to get a very specific message published. I don't know what he would think about my outlook. I don't care. I, could, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less what Ted Kaczynski thinks about my belief that smartphones are natural too. But anyway, rereading what he wrote today, a lot of it was permanently burned into my brain, so it was all still very familiar to me, even though it's been a while since I read it. But an interesting phenomenon I've noticed with leftists that I know, and the reason I was talking about leftists is because most of the manifesto is a scathing, not just criticism, he completely dismantles the foundations of leftism. He bookends the entire writing. Most of what he wrote about is fervently anti-leftist. He mentions conservatives once to say conservatives are fools, as he puts it. And he, he says, conservatives pretend to uphold tradition. Meanwhile, they're promoting technological growth. They're promoting the destruction of nature. So he dismisses conservatives with one sentence and spends paragraph after paragraph describing leftism, which makes sense when you figure that he dropped out of society in the late 1960s while he was teaching at Berkeley in the California Bay Area. So he was watching the hippie movement develop. He was watching the roots of modern leftism take hold in academia, and that immediately preceded what was described as his abrupt resignation and departure from society. And that's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that that seems to have provoked or otherwise influenced his departure. But he didn't completely depart. It's very clear, reading his writing, that he continued to observe technology. He continued to observe modern society very closely, maybe more closely than a lot of people who are participating in cities, in the suburbs. He seems to have been more aware of what was going on technologically than some of them. I mean, he mentions the Internet. The manifesto was published in 1995, and he makes reference to the Internet. Nothing he says seems outdated, and that's because he recognized the patterns. It's not that he was prophesying every little twist and turn that technology was going to make. It's not like he's Nostradami predicting social meteor predicting smartphones, nature phones. It's not like he predicted all that. He doesn't write about that. But it's clear that he allowed room for that. He saw what was going to happen. And his more general observations, his, gen his more general predictions about the future of technology and society certainly allow for all of that. He was aware of the wider implications, and he understood the direction we were headed to, heading, he heading to. So nothing he said reads as outdated, which is interesting. And much of what he said is ever more relevant, especially in the wake of coronavirus. You know, he mentions gene therapy. He mentions his analysis of psychotherapy is spot on. How psychotherapy is basically another tool to socialize people. And that becomes more and more evident. 
It's not there to fundamentally improve a person's spirit. It's to help them adjust to whatever chapter we're in. Whatever the expectations are. And I don't think it's any coincidence that psychotherapy these days enables, if not convinces, many people that they've been a victim. Because that's actually advantageous. The direction that Western civilization has gone in and our process of socialization has made it clear that being a victim is currency. And so if psychotherapy is is a tool that aids in socializing somebody who feels disconnected from society, it makes sense that it would encourage a sense of victimhood or martyrdom. Because that's a currency. That gets you places. Gets you something. Turns out it's a, a fairly cheap currency, but it's become a currency nonetheless that seems impossible to avoid and while psychotherapy does help some people with deeper issues, as I've talked about time and time again, it's enabled, it's given people a new, a new set of words, a new set of ideas to use to their own advantage in many cases. And why wouldn't it if it's a tool for socialization? But it also gives the greater society that has caused the person those problems an advantage too. So it doesn't just give the individual an advantage. It gives the society that put the person in that position to feel that way an advantage itself. It feeds into their framework. But anyway, I won't go on too much more of a, a therapy rant here. It's just clear that he understood the patterns that were developing. And it's not that he was Nostradami. Ted Nostradami Kaczynski. It's not that he had some supernatural ability to see what was going to happen. It's that he understood the patterns. And if you understand the patterns, you might not be able to predict every little detail, but you can see where things are heading. And yeah, he mentions gene therapy. His criticisms of science are incredible and ever, again, eternally relevant. And what's interesting is he lumps scientists in with politicians, corporate executives, and that class. He includes them in this uh, as one group. That's striking to me. Because you don't see that. You don't see people talk about scientists that way. That's how I see them. I believe scientists are part of the political and corporate class. That's who rules them. That's who pays them. That's who gives them power. And he talks a lot about science as a means of gaining power and the motivations of science. And his observations on that are eerily accurate when we look at what's playing out right now. But yeah, he mentions gene therapy. He mentions the way that society will control us as technology takes an even greater role in our lives and how the powers that be will use anything available 
And he, he mentions how gene therapy will modify people's bodies could, you know, he, he doesn't make any claims. He just says it could. But he, he says gene therapy, which is what the VAC, the VAC is, in case you didn't know, it's a gene therapy. But he refers to the role of gene therapy in all of this. So it's clear none of this is new. The people's concerns over what's going on, it's not new. People like him were well aware of this. This was published in 1995, so it was on his mind sometime prior to that. But what's most significant about it to me is just the amount of focus he put on leftism, especially because he dismisses conservatives as fools. You know, he says conservatives are basically hypocrites who claim to uphold tradition, but meanwhile just promote all of the same destructive forces that the left promotes. And this kind of plays into what I've mentioned on here about how conservatives are always losing ground. And tradition is always adjusting itself in the face of progress. And I was watching an interview about a month ago with Tucker Carlson. It was, he was the interviewee. And he was speaking very candidly. He was a guest on somebody else's show, and he, he wasn't playing his role that he, you know, even though he's, he is the person who has his Fox News show, but he's playing a role. And so this was him more off the cuff. I didn't find him disagreeable. I didn't find him unlikable. He's a pundit. But watching him talk off the cuff, I think he's a fairly simple person. But one thing he said stood out to me. He said, I just wish things would go back to 1985. And I laughed at that because a few months ago I was talking about how today's conservatives, like I'm 35, and I noticed that conservatives who are my age, they're not looking for us to go back to the 1950s. If we went back to the 1950s, conservatives today would be the liberals. Conservatives in the 1950s would be like, this person is the most progressive person in our entire country. This person's a communist. If a conservative from 1945 met a conservative today, they'd be like, this guy's a communist. What, what is he talking about? He's a conservative. And so when a 35-year-old conservative today says, I, I just want things to go back to tradition, he's talking about like 1992. He's talking about his childhood. So so many conservatives, when they talk about tradition, when they talk about returning to the way things were, they're just talking to... They're basically just talking about the mystique of childhood when things seemed different than they were. When in reality, the conservatives of decades past would be like, things are already far gone by 1992, or as Tucker Carlson said, 1985. And you look at a guy like Tucker Carlson, I think he's, I would guess he's in his early to mid-50s. He might be one of those guys who looks younger than he is. I think he's in his 50s. 1985 was probably around the time that he was just hitting the streets as an adult. He was probably in his 20s, I would guess. I don't know for sure. But yeah, 1985 was probably just the period of his life when he was having the most fun. But it wouldn't be some... It wasn't the... You know, you think about everything, all the decadence of the 1980s. That was not an, that was not an ideal conservative environment if we're talking about tradition and the deeper roots of conservatism.
But to Tucker Carlson, he just wants things to go back the way they were. And that's what a lot of people feel. But it plays into what Ted Kaczynski said, where that's not really conservative. That is foolish. If you're going to define your values based on tradition and going back to some earlier point in time that's long gone, but you're going to set your sights on 1985, it's like, what are you even doing? So I think that's kind of funny that he just dismisses conservatism in one sentence, but he spends a lot of time dismantling leftism in a way that speaks to my own perspective. And what's so interesting about this, I was going to get into this a second ago, but I've known a lot of leftists who will say things like, you know, uh, I don't like what he did, but Ted Kaczynski was right. He was right about everything. I've had friends who would identify as being on the far left who have said that. And I think that, well, I know they must not have read his manifesto if they'd say that. Anybody who would identify as a far leftist who would say, you know, Ted Kaczynski, he was right about everything. Might not, you know, I don't agree with what he did, but he was right about everything. They must not have read the manifesto because the manifesto specifically targets them the entire time. And it's not that you can't appreciate someone's ideas if they're opposed to yours, but I have a hard time believing that my leftist friends, and these are people I know personally, I'm thinking about one person in particular who considers herself something of a socialist and promotes all of the leftist causes. And I, I think I remember a conversation she and I had about Ted Kaczynski where she was talking about how she agreed with him on so many things. And I'm just like, how could you, though, given that so much of his platform was devoted to just total opposition to leftism? But it's clear she hadn't actually read what he wrote and that she was just confusing his environmentalism with leftism. Because many leftists don't understand that environmentalism can be separated from the left. Not only can it, that's its natural state. And as Ted Kaczynski goes into, leftism itself is opposed to nature. It attempts to impose technology and control nature in the name of preserving it, in the name of protecting it, but in doing that, they are actually fundamentally opposed to what nature truly is. And so in that regard, environmentalism is not a very leftist idea. But I know that people see, oh, Ted Kaczynski, he was, he was basically like a member of, uh, he, was, he was an eco-terrorist. Ted Kaczynski was an eco-terrorist. And I like eco-terrorists. A friend of mine sabotaged trucks at the uh, the logging facility. A friend of mine was part of... Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the organization. What's the name of that eco-terrorist organization? What's the name of that eco-terrorist organization that I like? Hey, 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 Sammy. What's the name of that eco-terrorist organization that I like? got some funny acronym. ELF. Yeah, it's ELF. Earth Liberation Front. 
Ted Kaczynski was not an Earth Liberation Front guy, but I think some of these leftist friends I've had who are like, yeah, what Ted Kaczynski said is cool. What he he said was right. You know, I got to admit what he said was right. I think that in their mind, he was just like a lone version of ELF. He was an elf. Did you know Ted Kaczynski's an elf? When in reality, he was not that at all. And I think what I'll do here, just to finish that thought, I don't think that you could be a leftist and read Ted Kaczynski's writing. Like, it would mean you basically didn't read it. Because he says explicitly that his movement is not just opposed in terms of thought, not just opposed ideologically to leftism, but he says there's no possibility of cooperation with leftists. And even though he says that his platform is non-political, you know, he says this is aimed at dismantling technology. It is not a political revolution. It is not designed to overthrow governments. It is a structural revolution designed to break down the entire system that we are using, the technological system. And he specifically says that his beliefs are non-political in nature. He does say that regardless of that, regardless of his apolitical goals, that he has no desire to cooperate with leftists in any regard. And he does not say that about conservatives. He does not say that he, his movement is incompatible with conservatism, but he says that it is completely incompa- incompatible with leftism, which is interesting that he makes that distinction considering he considered, considering he considered his message to be apolitical, his goals to be apolitical. And he closes out a lot of his writing. I'm just going to read it. You know, often I read Buddhist passages. Sometimes I'll read a little bit from the Bible. Other sources here and there. But this time I'm going to read a little bit of what Ted Kaczynski had to say. And this is the end. This is at the end of his manifesto. So this, this is Ted Kaczynski speaking. Some leftists may seem to oppose technology, but they will oppose it only so long as they are outsiders and the technological system is controlled by non-leftists. If leftism ever becomes dominant in society so that the technological system becomes a tool in the hands of leftists, they will enthusiastically use it and promote its growth. In doing this, they will be repeating a pattern that leftism has shown again and again in the past. When the Bolsheviks in Russia were outsiders, they vigorously opposed censorship and secret police. They advocated self-determination for ethnic minorities and so forth. But as soon as they came into power themselves, they imposed a tighter censorship and created a more ruthless secret police than any that had existed under the czars. And they oppressed ethnic minorities at least as much as the czars had done. In the United States, a couple of decades ago, when leftists were a minority in our universities, leftist professors were vigorous proponents of academic freedom. But today, in those of our universities where leftists have become dominant, they have shown themselves ready to take away from everyone else's academic freedom. This is political correctness. The same will happen with leftists and technology. They will use it to oppress everyone else if they ever get it under their own control. 
I'm going to continue reading more from this segment, but I mean, does do I even need to say anything? Do I even need to say anything? Can you believe that? I can, but he recognized the patterns. That is exactly what has been playing out for the last 10 to 20 years. Exactly. And I mean, obviously, its roots go back further, but we can see that that is playing out right now. And that's exactly where my own disillusion with the with this disillusion with <laughs> disillusionment with the left began as he says the left has a tendency to favor free speech and academic freedom when it is not serving them when it rather when it is not under their control but as soon as it is under their control as he says they use it to oppress everyone else so he was well aware of what would take place in universities. He was well aware of what would take place with what we're seeing now with these large technological corporations, Google, Twitter, Facebook, the list could go on and on, seeing what they do now that they have the power. And those companies are explicitly leftist. Continuing. In earlier revolutions, leftists of the most power-hungry type repeatedly have first cooperated with non-leftist revolutionaries, as well as with leftists of a more libertarian inclination, and later have double-crossed them to seize power for themselves. Robespierre did this in the French Revolution. The Bolsheviks did it in the Russian Revolution. The Communists did it in Spain in 1938, and Castro and his followers did it in Cuba. Given the past history of leftism, it would be utterly foolish for non-leftist revolutionaries today to collaborate with leftists. Various thinkers have pointed out that leftism is a kind of religion. Fun editorial note, funny how people are just realizing that now. You see that point made a lot, especially in the wake of the BLM hysteria. He was obviously well aware of it back when this was published in 1995, but to, to begin again, various thinkers have pointed out that leftism is a kind of religion. Leftism is not a religion in the strict sense, because leftist doctrine does not postulate the existence of any supernatural being. But for the leftist, leftism plays a psychological role, much like that which religion plays for some people. The leftist needs to believe in leftism. It plays a vital role in his psychological economy. His beliefs are not easily modified by logic or facts. He has a deep conviction that leftism is morally right with a capital R, and that he, is not o that he has not only a right but a duty to impose leftist morality on everyone. Ding, ding, ding. However, many of the people we are referring to as leftists do not think of themselves as leftists and would not describe, them, and would not describe their system of beliefs as leftism. We use the term leftism because we don't know of any better words to designate the spectrum of related creeds that includes the feminist, gay rights, political correctness, etc. movements, and because these movements have a strong affinity with the old left. I don't think the term intersectional had really come out yet. This is me speaking. <laughs> this, isn't this isn't Ted Kaczynski speaking. This is me. Um, the term intersectional, I believe, is relatively new. When I was at the Evergreen State College, which is ground zero for this way of thinking, you heard it, but not often. Kind of like with the trans thing. The trans thing was going on, but it was not at the forefront the way it is now. Now it's 
a core part of Evergreen's system. You can't go, I mean, I go to the Evergreen campus just to walk and run, and I see writing, I see graffiti about trans stuff, intersectionality is everywhere, and those are in the mainstream now. But I don't believe, you know, you can see where it's not that Ted Kaczynski's writing is outdated because he's talking about intersectionality. When he says there's not a word for these movements, or he's, he's not a, he's, he's, he's saying he's using the term leftism to describe these intersecting movements, but the term intersectional leftism wasn't yet around. It wasn't popularized. So he's talking about what's today called intersectionalism, but he's saying the spectrum of related creeds that includes the feminist, gay rights, political correctness, etc. movements. He's describing what's been brought together under the banner of intersectionalism. Just interesting to see that he was aware of it, but it didn't yet have the name it has now. Continuing as Ted Kaczynski, leftism is a totalitarian force. Wherever leftism is in a position of power, it tends to invade every private corner and force every thought into a leftist mold. In part, this is because of the quasi-religious character of leftism. Everything contrary to leftist beliefs represents sin. More importantly, leftism is a totalitarian force because of the leftist drive for power. The leftist seeks to satisfy his need for power through identification with a social movement, and he tries to go through the power process by helping to pursue and attain the goals of the movement. But no matter how far the movement has gone in attaining its goals, the leftist is never satisfied, because his activism is a surrogate activity. That is, the leftist's real motive is not to attain the ostensible goals of leftism. In reality, he is motivated by the sense of power he gets from struggling for and then reaching a social goal. Consequently, the leftist is never satisfied with the goals he has already attained. His need for the power process leads him always to pursue some new goal. The leftist wants equal opportunities for minorities. When that is attained, he insists on statistical equality of achievement by minorities. And as long as anyone harbors in some corner of his mind a negative attitude towards some minority, the leftist has to re-educate him. And ethnic minorities are not enough. No one can be allowed to have a negative attitude toward homosexuals, disabled people, fat people, old people, ugly people, and on and on and on. It's not enough that the public should be informed about the hazards of smoking. A warning has to be stamped on every package of cigarettes. Then cigarette advertising has to be restricted, if not banned. The activist will never be satisfied until tobacco is outlawed. And after that, it will be alcohol, then junk food, etc. Activists have fought gross child abuse, which is reasonable. But now they want to stop all spanking. When they have done that, they will want to ban something else they consider unwholesome then another thing, and then another. They will never be satisfied until they have complete control over all child-rearing practices, and then they will move on to another cause. You know, again, the trans thing wasn't really a talking point then. I mean, as I said before, in 2004 to 2008, it barely came up at the Evergreen State College, which was ground zero. So he clearly wasn't aware of that, but we can see where that has made its way into 
child rearing practices, as he was just talking about, where in the last year or two, we see more and more where people are calling it child abuse if someone doesn't allow their young child to transition and take you know, various medications to have surgeries that change them permanently, how that's now being called child abuse. So we can see where it never really ends. And that last paragraph, and that was all just one paragraph, spot on. We can see where that plays out again and again. And it's funny to see people who have just realized that. Because a lot of people became disenchanted with the left over the last 10 years. And it's funny to see them discover these things on their own. But then you have Ted Kaczynski, who was well aware of it then, and it hadn't even gone as far as it, as it has now. You know, the understanding he had that it never ends. That even when a certain goal has been achieved, the goalpost gets moved that much further along. And what he said about minorities, where, you know, once minorities have equal opportunities, and that's achieved... Then they insist on statistical equality of achievement by minorities to the point where they're willing to rig the system to do that, to achieve that goal. And we see that taking place now. So even though he was removed from society since the late 1960s, you can see that he was basically like he might as well have been on Twitter. Even though he was living in a cabin in Montana, his understanding of leftism and his ongoing observation of it was so sharp, he remained so aware of it, that he's talking about what's happening right now in 2021 because he understood the pattern. Again, it's not that he's Nostradami. He's the Unabomber, not Nostradami. But he understood the pattern, which is why what he's talking about then is playing out now. I mean, he even talked about fat shaming in that last paragraph. Continuing, suppose you asked leftists to make a list of all the things that were wrong with society, and then suppose you instituted every social change that they demanded. It is safe to say that within a couple of years, the majority of leftists would find something new to complain about, some new social evil to correct, because once again, the leftist, the leftist is motivated less by distress at society's ills than by the need to satisfy his drive for power by imposing his solutions on society. You can see that with the VAC. People don't actually care about everyone being VAC'd. They don't. It's clear they're not concerned with public health. They believe that everyone should get the VAC because they are a collectivist group. This is me talking. Just got to make that distinction. Obviously, Ted, even though he did talk about gene therapy in this manifesto, he didn't talk about coronavirus. He didn't predict, he didn't predict coronavirus. He does talk about how disease played a role in all this. He does talk about what would happen if disease were to be spread, you know, he, he, he was well aware of what could happen. I don't think he's shocked at all in his tiny little cell in Colorado or wherever he is. I don't think he's shocked at all at what's transpiring in the name of coronavirus. Continuing, because of the restrictions placed on their thoughts and behavior by their high level of socialization, Many leftists of the over-socialized type cannot pursue power in the ways that other people do. For them, the drive for power has only one morally acceptable outlet, and that is in the struggle to impose their morality on everyone. 
Leftists, especially those of the over-socialized type, are true believers in the sense of Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer. But not all true believers are of the same psychological type as leftists. Presumably, a true believing Nazi, for instance, is very different psychologically from a true believing leftist. Because of their capacity for single-minded devotion to a cause, true believers are a useful, perhaps a necessary ingredient for any revolutionary movement. This presents a problem with which we must admit we don't know how to deal. We aren't sure how to harness the energies of the true believer to a revolution against technology. At present, all we can say is that no true believer will make a safe recruit to the revolution unless his commitment is exclusive to the destruction of technology. If he is committed also to another ideal, he may want to use technology as a tool for pursuing that other ideal. Some readers may say, this stuff about leftism is a lot of crap. I know John and Jane who are leftist types, and they don't have all those totalitarian tendencies. It's quite true that many leftists, possibly even a numerical majority, are decent people who sincerely believe in tolerating others' values up to a point, and wouldn't want to use high-handed methods to reach their social goals. Our remarks about leftism are not meant to apply to every individual leftist, but to describe the general character of leftism as a movement. And the general character of a movement is not necessarily determined by the numerical proportions of the various kinds of people involved in the movement. The people who rise to positions of power in leftist movements tend to be leftists of the most power-hungry type, because power-hungry people are those who strive hardest to get into positions of power. Once the power-hungry types have captured control of the movement, there are many leftists of a gentler breed who inwardly disapprove of many of the actions of the leaders, but cannot bring themselves to oppose them. They need their faith in the movement, and because they cannot give up this faith, they go along with the leaders. True, some leftists do have the guts to oppose the totalitarian tendencies that emerge, but they generally lose, because the power-hungry types are better organized are more ruthless and Machiavellian, and have taken care to build themselves a strong power base. You see that a lot playing out now. There's a lot of people, and I know them, who I still identify as leftists and quietly oppose what's going on right now. I have a friend, actually, who, a friend in person here, and we were, I just, I said something off the cuff that I wouldn't normally say, and it kind of opened the doors to her just spilling her guts about how she has so many problems with what's happening. And it was like confession for her. Because she's not a very political person, but she's definitely on the left. And she kind of knows, I don't think she knows entirely where I stand. We've been friends for a very long time. And I think she has an idea, a general, she knows that I'm not a leftist. But I, I definitely haven't shared all of my thoughts, even the things I say on here. She doesn't, she wouldn't necessarily know about me. But it was funny. I made just one little offhand comment, probably about political correctness or whatever, some equivalent to that. And it opened the doors to her being like, I, I can't stand this and I can't stand that. You know, it was amazing, actually, because you could tell it was like confession to her because it's something that... Someone who still identifies with the left like that, they don't have any outlet for expressing that. I at least have friends who, if they don't agree with me, they're not going to be offended when I don't say the current leftist talking point. 
But there's a lot of people out there who don't have anybody in their lives that they know of who they can say these things to. This is me talking. Now we're continuing on. These phenomena appeared clearly in Russia and other countries that were taken over by leftists. Similarly, before the breakdown of communism in the USSR, leftist types in the West would seldom criticize that country. If prodded, they would admit that the USSR did many wrong things, but then then they would try to find excuses for the communists and begin talking about the faults of the West. They always opposed Western military resistance to communist aggression. Leftist types all over the world vigorously vigorously protested the U.S. military action in Vietnam, but when the USSR invaded Afghanistan, they did nothing. Not that they approved of the Soviet actions, but because of their leftist faith, they just couldn't bear to put themselves in opposition to communism. Today, in those of our universities where political correctness has become dominant, there are probably many leftist types who privately disapprove of the suppression of academic freedom, but they go along with it anyway. You hear about that time and time again. This is me talking. You hear about that time and time again with these professors who have gotten driven out of their universities for minor issues, like what happened to Evergreen where I went where that professor Brett Weinstein was driven out of the school because he didn't believe white people should be forced to stay home on this one day. People demanded that white people not come to school on this one day. And he said, you can't do that. So they called him a racist and drove him out of the school. He's a Jewish science professor who's been committed to, who'd worked at Evergreen for a very long time. He and his wife are liberals. But they were branded Nazis. A Jewish science professor was branded a Nazi because he said, you can't force white people to stay home. And he said, he's come out and he said that many of his colleagues privately told him they agree, but they would never stand up to it. One, because they want to keep their jobs. But it kind of goes back to Teddy Kay's earlier point about, for a lot of them too, it's too painful to completely abandon their faith. Continuing, thus the fact that many individual leftists are personally mild and fairly tolerant people by no means prevents leftism as a whole from having a totalitarian tendency. Our discussion of leftism has a serious weakness. It is still far from clear what we mean by the word leftist. There doesn't seem to be much we can do about this. Today, leftism is fragmented into a whole spectrum of activist movements, yet not Yet not all activist movements are leftist, and some activist movements, example given, radical environmentalism, seem to include both personalities of the leftist type and personalities of thoroughly unleftist types who ought to know better than to collaborate with leftists. My dad. My dad. Varieties of leftists fade out gradually into varieties of non-leftists, And we ourselves would often be hard-pressed to decide whether a given individual is or is not a leftist. To the extent that it is defined at all, our conception of leftism is defined by the discussion of it that we have given in this article, and we can only advise the reader to use his own judgment in deciding who is a leftist. Well, I'm going to editorialize a bit there. It's become abundantly clear now. In 1995, I think it was a little more vague like he's getting at. The last two years, if not the entire Trumpsfeld era, has made it abundantly clear who lines up where. And if somebody doesn't know where you line up, they will place you somewhere. Like that 
I, I don't know if I could even call him a friend anymore, but that guy who's just become completely possessed by leftism, who I used to hang out with, who, because I made comments in favor of free speech after the January 6th event, he basically accused me of being brainwashed by QAnon. QAnon. He basically accused me of being brainwashed by QAnon. I don't think I can consider that person a friend. I handled it with dignity. I didn't want to turn it into more than it was, but I didn't forget it. So people have drawn, they've drawn lines of sand around themselves, and they've made it very clear. I think it's very clear who is a leftist now and who isn't. It was a little more vague in 1995 when this was published. I believe it was a little more vague, and I mean, the internet has helped with that. Teddy Kay wrote all of this before social media, before people were, before most people had the internet in their homes. I mean, I don't think I even saw the internet in someone's home until 96. So when this was written, most people didn't have the internet, people didn't have social media. Or, so now with social media, it's very clear who sits where. Because this was the era, too, when politics weren't considered polite discussion. People were told, don't discuss politics or religion or sex at the dinner table. Don't, don't, discuss, don't discuss politics, dinner, or sex at the dinner table. And that's where that old motto kind of came in. So people weren't just throwing it in your face. I think they've made it a little more clear. And when people don't line up, which Ted Kaczynski clearly didn't, it's clear he's not a conservative. But it's very clear he's not a leftist. I mean, the, the amount of criticism he has about the left, not just criticism, he's not criticizing the left from within. Every part of his being is repelled by leftism. It's apparent in the entire manifesto. And uh, you couldn't place him on the political spectrum, though. You could not call Ted Kaczynski a conservative you know, and I know a lot of people like this. A lot of my friends are this way. They may have taken on certain political views as a matter of practicality one way or the other. But you can't call them a leftist. You can't call them a true conservative. I think a lot of my friends fall into this category. I believe that I fall into this category. And it drives people crazy. When people can't... In this climate where people have drawn the lines in the sand... If they can't place you on one side or the other, I mean, I'm definitely not on the left, and I haven't been my entire adult life. I'm sometimes reminded of that. Because a lot of people got disenchanted with leftism over the last five, ten years. I found an old interview I did from over ten years ago, and I was amazed at some of the things I said in that. But uh, with me personally, like when I used to hang out with a large group of leftist friends here in town and drink with them. And it wasn't based on politics. It was just based on having fun and getting along with people. And they would talk about politics and I wouldn't really speak up because it wasn't important. They were just drunk and they were talking. But I realized at that point that because they were, they, they existed in such a liberal bubble, they expected that if I disagreed with them, I would be some nasty Republican who would just argue with them. So the idea that I had the restraint to not say anything led them to believe that I agreed with them. 
And I've, I've used the example before of a conversation I had during that period. This would have been around 2014, 2015. I was at a bar with friends and we were drinking, having a good time. And one of them was like, I don't see why you don't just call yourself a feminist because you are because you are. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not. A, I wouldn't call myself a feminist because I'm not. And they said, yeah, but you act like a feminist. You, you, you treat women well. And I'm not saying that as some way to pat myself on the back, but that's what this person said. And, and I said, well, that should be enough, shouldn't it? Like, if, if you think that my conduct and behavior is analogous to whatever feminism means to you, doesn't that seem good enough? And they were like, yeah, but you, you need to call yourself a feminist. You need to, like, lend your support to the cause. And you are one. Whether you call yourself one or not, you are one. And I was just like, if you have to think of me as a feminist in your head to make me seem okay, go ahead and do it, but I'm not one. If you think that my conduct and behavior complements or is consistent with whatever feminism means today, which is probably what it didn't mean yesterday, and it'll probably mean something else tomorrow, that's great. But I'm not going to call myself that because I'm not one. But people place such an emphasis on words. I could see that this group of people was they were experience they were experiencing significant cognitive dissonance because I wouldn't just call myself a feminist. And their argument was that my behavior is consistent with their idea of feminism. It's not like I was saying things. It's not like I was like, dude, women. Guys, I just want to say women rule. It's not like I was saying stupid shit like that. It's not like I was pandering. But basically, I treat women with a basic level of human respect. But the thing is, too, is I also have traditional views of what men and women are. And depending on the flavor of the day, sometimes that's offensive and sometimes it's not. And so among many reasons, one reason why I would never call myself a feminist is because the second I call myself a feminist, if I say something that's not consistent with the flavor of the day, I'm going to get called, you know, a liar or I'm going to get called out. It's easier just to live my life. And isn't it all about behavior anyway? Isn't the whole point behavior? And I'll never understand that in a million years. I'll never understand in a million years why a label, why a word should be given more value than the behavior. Because the word is meant to describe the behavior. But the cognitive dissonance that this group of people was experiencing over the fact that I wouldn't just commit, that I wouldn't just wear the jacket. I wouldn't just join their club and wear their jacket. It was causing them a level of distress. Distress. Very strange. And you can see that play out now. I mean, I see conservatives do it as well. Libertarians, which I'm not. I'm not a libertarian. Sometimes people describe me that way to when people I've had a couple people I know of refer to me as a libertarian because they don't know what else to call me. I'm not offended by that, but I'm, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian. But uh, you see the way libertarians get targeted by both conservatives and liberals. If you want to piss off both conservatives and liberals, be a libertarian. As I was joking about a month ago, 
It's like telling people you're spiritual, not religious, which I am. But, you know, dogmatic religious people hate that. Even Buddhists. In my experience, I went to a Buddhist group, and the fact that I wouldn't commit to their group, they didn't say anything, but I could sense it. Because they did try to recruit me to their group. And when I said, oh yeah, you know, I, I have my own practice. This is cool. It's cool what you guys are doing. But yeah, I, I do have my own practice. I could see something. I could, I could feel the tension. That this guy wanted me to join his group. And so that plays out. You know, people want you to be, they want you to use the, the name. They want you to join. And so even though... People get mocked for saying, I'm spiritual but not religious. That's what I am. I have political views, but I'm not committed to one political platform. And my view on libertarianism, as I've probably said before, is that it's a great philosophy. As a philosophy, I do agree with a lot of libertarianism. Put into practice as an actual functional political platform, not so much. So on a philosophical level, I do agree with a lot of libertarianism, but I wouldn't call myself a political libertarian. But that said, I don't think the alternatives are any better. So I don't know what to say about that. But I can tell you I'm not a libertarian, but I know that in the same way those friends were having this difficulty reconciling who I am with the fact that I refuse to call myself a feminist because I'm not one. It's not that I'm a feminist who just doesn't want to use that word. I'm not a feminist. So let's make it easy, and I just won't call myself that. But the same group of people, and I'm not using a composite here, I'm talking about the same individual people who were part of that conversation. Every single time a guy from their liberal bubble community was outed as a rapist or a domestic abuser, they were always shocked. And this happened during the short time that I, during the little window of time, several years that I was hanging out with these people a lot, This happened more than once. It happened like three or four times that I can just think of where some guy who called himself a liberal, who called himself a feminist, who was an activist type, was outed as a rapist, was outed as being physically abusive to his girlfriend or wife. It happened multiple times. And every single time their response was the same. They were like, I can't believe it. He said he was a feminist. It's like, are you understand? Aren't you learning? Aren't you figuring it out now that that means nothing and that people who are manipulative and who have nefarious intent know how easy it is to just call themselves that? Yet, because my behavior is good, you think I need to call myself something? And yet you're not learning from it. Each time it happened, these same people, they would be like, there was even a time where this guy got outed. I didn't know him. But he was apparently a close friend of these people going back many years. He was a liberal activist, a self-professed feminist. He had been involved in the music scene. He was a photographer. And it came out that he had this whole system in place. His name was Matt. I'm trying to remember who cares what his last name was, but his name was Matt. That's all I remember. Of course, he was a Matt. But uh, it came out that he was... He had this whole scheme that he'd been doing for years where he would pretend to be a woman online and he used a fake picture and he would contact women pretending to be a woman 
and he was pretending to be like his agent or his girlfriend or something, and he would basically ease his way into these conversations with other women and be like, oh, my, my boyfriend's a photographer, and, you know, I just wanted to reach out and, like, see if maybe you wanted to model for him and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he was doing this while pretending to be a woman, so he would arrange for an appointment for these women to be models— and then he would meet up with them for a drink, and then he would drug them and do what he wanted with them. And he did this many times. And this came out, and it was big news because everyone was like, "Matt was a feminist. Matt was. I know Matt. I know. I knew Matt. I knew Matt for so many years. You know, people were just really. They just couldn't believe it. And then stories came out where girls from this town, because he had moved to Seattle, and girls from this town came out and they were like, well, yeah, he did this to me. Oh, well, you know, he tried to do this. You know, it came out that he'd been doing this forever. And yeah, sometimes I'm skeptical of some of these claims. Not always. You know, I, I generally try to believe people. I know that women get attacked and harassed. I've seen some of the messages my female friends get, and it's unbelievable. But there was enough about this guy to where it was a clear pattern of behavior. But people were shocked because he, he said he was a feminist. And it's like, are you not figuring it out yet? But anyway, there's such an emphasis on, on that. Um, continuing on anyway. But it will be helpful to list some criteria for diagnosing leftism. These criteria cannot be applied in a cut-and-dried manner. Some individuals may need to meet some individuals may meet some of the criteria without being leftists. Some leftists may not meet any of the criteria. Again, you just have to use your own judgment. The leftist is oriented toward large-scale collectivism. He emphasizes the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. He has a negative attitude toward individualism. He often takes a moralistic tone. He tends to be for gun control, for sex education, and other psychologically enlightened educational methods. Enlightened is in quotes. For social planning, for affirmative action, for multiculturalism. He tends to identify with victims. He tends to be against competition and against violence, but he often finds excuses for those leftists who do commit violence. Huh, never heard of that. Um, he is fond of using the common catchphrases of the left, like racism, sexism, homophobia, capitalism, imperialism, neocolonialism, genocide, social change, social justice, social responsibility. Maybe the best diagnostic Maybe the best diagnostic trait of the leftist is his tendency to sympathize with the following movements. Feminism, gay rights, ethnic rights, disability rights, animal rights, political correctness. Anyone who strongly sympathizes with all of these movements is almost certainly a leftist. Some my own commentary here. But that plays into the vaccine thing where what Teddy Kay said there about the leftist being oriented toward large-scale collectivism and emphasizing the duty of the individual to, to serve society and having a negative attitude toward individualism, I think that's at the heart of the whole vaccine debate. Again, I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that some people are putting other people at risk, especially because the logic is so distorted and weird. 
as Obama bin Biden himself said in his big announcement about vaccine mandates, he said, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, which makes zero sense. I understand that vaccinated people can get the disease, but it kind of goes against the entire framework that they're operating under, that you have to protect vaccinated people from the unvaccinated. Because isn't that what the vaccine itself is supposed to do? So it's not actually about that. It's clearly not about that because the logic falls apart even as it's spoken. It's clear to me that at the heart of the vaccine debate is collectivism, which is that some people aren't doing what the other people are doing. And as a result, they are making themselves the enemy. They are being individuals. And coronavirus has reinforced collectivism to a, deg- to a pathological degree that I've never seen in my life. My life. And so what people are responding to is an aversion to... What people are reacting to is individualism. And right now, the collective has such a strong aversion to individualism that they are willing to demonize and witch hunt and attack with really no boundaries whatsoever. We saw that going on during the BLM hysteria, where people were calling other people out for all kinds of things. The way that white supremacy is thrown around now. Simply being an individual, simply not agreeing, or not agreeing loud enough, makes you the enemy. And it kind of plays into what I was saying about my friends having such a hard time with me not calling myself a feminist. It had nothing to do with my own beliefs and behavior because they were their entire point was that my beliefs and behavior are good. What bothered them is that I wasn't joining the collective they were a part of. Because I wasn't willing to say that I'm a feminist, I was being an individual. And it's not that I think individualism is virtuous in its own right. I'm not a fan of individualism for the sake of individualism. But when I want to be an individual, when I feel that acting and thinking as an individual is the right path for me, I don't want to be forced, and I'm not going to be forced, into a different position. And so that argument is completely in vain. And I'm just deflecting. But the real issue there is not whether or not I'm a feminist, because they seem to think I was one, and that I just didn't know it. The issue was, is that I was not calling myself one. I was not signaling that I was a part of their group, that I was not a part of their collective. I basically wasn't getting the vaccine. You could just turn that argument into a vaccine argument where they were saying, why don't you just get the vaccine? And you can see that where, as somebody who did get vaxxed, as someone who got vaxxed, I mean, what, it's in like late March of last year? It's going to be a year. I've been vaxxed most of this year. But I know that if I were to say, if I were to come out and say to some of these people I know that, oh yeah, I got vaxxed, but I don't think anybody should have to be. That would, again, make me too much of an individual for them. Because I see people getting attacked for that. I've seen numerous people be attacked for that exact point of saying, oh, no, listen, I got vacked like you. But I don't think anybody should have to get vacked. 
And I see where in saying that, you might as well be unvacked. You will be treated as if you were unvacked, even though you are vacked. The fact that you don't agree with them, that people should be coercively mandated to get vacked, puts you on the same side as the unvacked, even though I'm vacked. So see, logic falls apart, and Teddy K even mentioned how logic plays no role in this. Continuing on, the more dangerous leftists, that is, those who are the most power-hungry, are often characterized by arrogance or by a dogmatic approach to ideology. However, the most dangerous leftists of all may be certain over-socialized types who avoid irritating displays of aggressiveness and refrain from advertising their leftism, but work quietly and unobtrusively to promote collectivist values, quote-unquote, enlightened psychological techniques for socializing children, dependence of the individual on the system, and so forth. These crypto-leftists, as we may call them, approximate certain bourgeois types as far as practical action is con- Let me re- rephrase that. These crypto-leftists, as we may call them, approximate certain bourgeois types as far as practical action is concerned, but differ from them in psychology, ideology, and motivation. The ordinary bourgeois tries to bring people under control of the system in order to protect his way of life, or he does so simply because his attitudes are conventional. The crypto-leftist tries to bring people under the control of the system because he is a true believer in a collectivistic ideology. The crypto-leftist is differentiated from the average leftist of the over-socialized type by the fact that his rebellious impulse is weaker and he is more securely socialized. He is differentiated from the ordinary well-socialized bourgeois bourgeois, by the fact that there is some deep lack within him that makes it necessary for him to devote himself to a cause and immerse himself in a collectivity. And maybe his well-sublimated drive for power is stronger than that of the average bourgeois. I think that was exactly what I was talking about right there. The crypto-leftist, I believe, is that type who simply wants you to join. They might not actually believe in what they're saying, and often they don't. Because what they're saying doesn't actually matter to them. Those people who wanted me to call myself a feminist, it was clear in that that my behavior didn't actually matter to them. The movement of feminism that wants to reform certain that wants to reform our society's treatment of women seems to have been less important to them than me calling myself something that signals to them I'm part of their collective. Because if they actually cared about the treatment of women, the fact that I treat women with respect should have been the end of the conversation. It actually shouldn't even have been a conversation. And so what Ted Kaczynski is talking about there when he says a crypto-leftist opposed to the tried-and-true bourgeois is that the latter actually does have, let's say, the workers' interest in mind when they promote labor unions, when they promote communism. But there's a whole other branch, what he called the crypto-leftist, which doesn't actually care. And how that is the more nefarious type of person. And I agree. At this point, I don't know that crypto leftist really applies to them because these days they're just calling themselves leftists. 
the internet has made it all very clear too. But I do agree with him that that person is more nefarious because they are using it as a means to control people and enforce power. And they don't even care about the would-be virtue that they are attaching themselves to. That is far more dangerous. And that's the end. He does a final note after that. And that wasn't, you know, that was just the the last section that I read there. There's a lot more to it. Obviously, I didn't read the whole manifesto. I didn't read the whole manifesto. But I'll I'll read the final note because it's just two paragraphs. Throughout this article, we've made imprecise statements and statements that ought to have had all sorts of qualifications and reservations attached to them. And some of our statements may be flatly false. Lack of sufficient information and the need for brevity made it impossible for us to formulate our assertions more precisely or add all the necessary qualifications. And of course, in a discussion of this kind, one must rely heavily on intuitive judgment, and that can sometimes be wrong. So we don't claim that this article expresses more than a crude approximation to the truth. All the same, we are reasonably confident that the general outlines of the picture we have painted here are roughly correct. Just one possible weak point needs to be mentioned. We have portrayed leftism in its modern form as a phenomenon peculiar to our time and as a symptom of the disruption of the power process. But we might, be possibly, we might possibly be wrong about this. Over-socialized types who try to satisfy their drive for power by imposing their morality on everyone have certainly been around for a long time. But we think that the decisive role played by feelings of inferiority, low self-esteem, powerlessness, identification with victims by people who are not themselves victims, is a peculiarity, I can't even say it, of modern leftism. Identification with victims by people not themselves Identification with victims by people not themselves victims can be seen to some extent in 19th century leftism and early Christianity, but as far as we can make out, symptoms of low self-esteem, etc., were not nearly so evident in these movements, or or in any other movements, as they are in modern leftism. But we are not in a position to assert confidently that no such movements have existed prior to modern leftism. This is a significant question to which historians ought to give their attention. That's the end of the manifesto. Very interesting to end on that note. I mean, that could just as well have been written by some disgruntled academic intellectual dark web guy. And it's accurate. And I don't feel that I'm biased toward it. I don't feel that I have any bias toward Ted Kaczynski. I know who he is and what he did, but I can separate myself from that. And I can read this objectively, just like I did 20 years ago as a teenager. Because I can tell you, when I read this as a teenager, I wasn't reading it thinking, oh, I bet I'm going to agree with the Unabomber. I, I barely knew who he was. I didn't sit down and go, I, I, today I guess I'm going to agree with the Unabomber. I just read it and I was blown away. And there's humility to it as well. Like the ending, he's saying we could be wrong about some things. Turns out he wasn't very wrong. Turns out he was probably more right than he even realized at the time. And I think somebody would want to classify him because it's clear that he's not a leftist. 
I think somebody would want to say, well, I guess Ted, I didn't know that Ted Kaczynski was a white supremacist, right wing terrorist. Guess what? He's not that either. He's something far scarier to these people. He's ambiguous. Yet he makes all of his values known. But because you can't put a word on him, terrorist, I would call him a terrorist. I have no issue calling Ted Kaczynski a terrorist. But beyond that, you can't attach his terrorism. Yeah, maybe you can, I would call it eco-terrorism. But you can't attach it to a certain political cause, and he explicitly distances himself from that. And you know what? I'm going to go back to the beginning here. I don't know, this is a lot of reading for one episode, and this is going to be long, but I'm not going to do another episode about it, (laughs) hopefully. Um, I might kind of skim this. But he says, you know, he starts out, because that was the end, so he ends the manifesto talking about leftism, but I'm going to kind of do a reversal here and talk about the beginning, because didn't you know the beginning's the end? We all know the beginning's the end. Dude, you're you're like a spiritual guy, like as above, so below. Dude, you're like a spiritual guy, as above, so below. The beginning's the end, right? Yeah, sure. Almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. But what is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism. Today, the movement is fragmented, and it is not clear who can properly be called a leftist. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. But not everyone who is associated with one of these movements is a leftist. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much movement or an ideology as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the, in the course of our discussion of leftist psychology. Again, I find it interesting, this is me, uh, again, I find it interesting that he's saying not all of what he refers to as leftists could be defined by leftist politics alone. Because we see that today. And I noticed this, I have some friends who, who identify as being part of the far left, And what I notice is they will always say, like, Democrats aren't leftists. Joe Joe Biden's, like, conservative by European standards. In in Europe, Obama bin Biden would be a conservative. They say things like that, and they talk about Democrats would be considered conservative in Europe. But for practical purposes, they're on the left. They're part of that greater movement. And that's what Ted Kaczynski is talking about here. It's not that all of these people could be defined as socialist. It's not that you could actually pinpoint their beliefs. You know, because you look at a lot of who falls on the left today in America, and a lot of them are like corporate executives. A lot of them are people who, in practice, are not leftists at all. But yet they are a part of that greater movement. And that's why, as Ted Kaczynski points out, leftist isn't necessarily the most accurate term. 
But I think you can flip it too, and conservative is used just as just as loosely. And as as this manifesto itself says, conservatives' view of traditionalism is kind of hypocritical and hollow. So the people who fall into this spectrum of left and right and liberal and conservative, it's not that they actually uphold those values. It's it's that they've managed to kind of pool on each side. It's, it's, it's a strange phenomenon, but I think it's just how things work. It's almost like there's a magnetism to it that pulls people to, closer to one side or the other. Um, continuing, even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish, but there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. All we are trying to do here is indicate in a rough and approximate way the two psychological tendencies that we we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. We by no means claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also, our discussion is meant to apply to modern leftism only. We leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion could be applied to the leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism, but this segment is highly influential. By feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits, low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. When someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him, or about groups with which he identifies, we conclude that he has inferiority feelings or low self-esteem. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro, Oriental, Handicapped, or Chick for an African, an Asian, a disabled person, or a woman orig- or a woman originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, dude, or fella, fellow. The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. Leftish anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They want to replace the word primitive by non-literate. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. We do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftish anthropologists. Yeah, you know, this is me. Um, It kind of goes without saying that Ted Kaczynski favors primitive cultures. 
And he goes, I'm not going to get into like that part of the manifesto, but he talks about that. I mean, and it's clear from the way he lived in Montana, he lived a primitive lifestyle. But pointing out the hypersensitivity about that is important. And how that hypersensitivity doesn't actually change the reality. And I think it's funny that he pointed out chick, because I personally have been lectured about the word chick by somebody at a party. Actually, two different people. One time it was at a party, another time it was at a bar. One time a friend... I asked a friend about, or a friend mentioned that I shouldn't use the word chick, and I, I use the word chick. I've never even thought twice about it. And I, and I do use it in the same sense that I use the word dude. I see those as equivalents, and Ted Kaczynski said that. He said, it's like dude. It's like saying dude. It's like saying dude. And this friend of mine was like, you shouldn't say that. It equates women. Think, she said, think about what a chick is. It's a baby. So basically, you're calling women babe, like a baby bird. And I was like, I never even would have gone there with it. It's weird to me that somebody would go there with it. And I refused to concede. I refused to concede on that one. And then it came up again. Because like that person was saying it's demeaning to women to call them chicks. I've never heard chick used in a demeaning way. I have heard people be like, oh, she was just some chick. In a, in a dismissive way. But that's again no different from someone saying he was just some dude. Some dude came up to me and said this. Some chick came up to me and said this. You could use any word to give that impression. Some guy came up to me. Some woman came up to me. It doesn't matter what word you use. Another time I was having a conversation at a bar with this. She was kind of a friend of a friend. She was cool and everything, but we were talking about like some weird situation. A mutual friend had been involved in with a, a woman. And I said, oh, yeah, I heard something about that. He, I heard about that. Like he was such and such happened with some chick. And she goes, excuse me? And then her friend but, even butted in and they were like, that chick is our friend. And I was like, huh? And she was like, you just called her a chick. And I, was, I said, yeah. And they were like, they, they were basically telling me I was being dismissive of her or something, that I was disrespecting her in some way by calling her a chick. And this guy was with us who was my friend. He was my drinking buddy. And he's now, he now splits time, some of his time being a woman and some of his time being a man. I don't know when I don't know when he does one or when he does the other. I haven't seen him for years. I respect him and like him. He's a very intelligent guy, but he kind of he didn't say anything, but he kind of like I looked at him at one point when they were saying this. Not even looking for support, but just kind of like looking trying to like find a sane face. And he looked like really like disappointed in me. And I was like, this is fucking bullshit. Because I used the word chick. So Ted Kaczynski, he's not making that up. That happened to me in the 2010s. Chick. Continuing, those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, 
many of whom do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from a privileged strata of society. Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper middle class families. Editorial here. Interesting how that's changed, though. At the time that Ted Kaczynski was aware of this, it was coming from white male heterosexual professors, whereas now we can see that it's white female heterosexual professors who seem to be pushing this the hardest. So it doesn't seem to matter who it is, but people in that position seem to be pushing this. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak. For example, women. Defeated. Example, American Indians. Repellent, like homosexuals, or otherwise inferior. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. We do not mean to suggest that women, Indians, etc. are inferior. We are only making a point about leftist psychology. Feminists are desperately anxious to prove that women are as strong and as capable as men, Clearly, they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. Leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. The reasons that leftists give for hating the West, etc., clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because, because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them, or at best he grudgingly admits that they exist, whereas he enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Thus it is clear that these faults are not the leftist's real motive for hating America and the West. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. You know, I, I agree with that. You know, there might be a little bit of—it's it's hard to prove that the hatred comes from a pure disgust for strength and success, but that's part of it for sure. I think about my last serious girlfriend— who was far left. And anything I did to better myself, she resented. When I got really into fitness, I didn't force it on her. I liked her the way she was. I didn't encourage her to change who she was. But I could tell it bothered her. And she had extremely low self-esteem, which she admitted. And she had severe depression, which she admitted. But she surrounded herself by people who not only shared those traits, but reinforced them. And as a result, I didn't really like her friends very much. I was nice to them. It wasn't like I was a jerk to them, but I was so different from them. And I knew it, and they knew it. And most of what they said to each other was so self-defeating. And not just self-defeating, but it defeated everybody else around them. They reinforced this negativity, and it was all projected on the outside world. And I think my girlfriend was a lot better than most, which is why we had something in common. But I could see where, like, 
I, deep down, I didn't feel that she was like them. And I believe she wanted their acceptance. And it was really difficult to watch because she was so talented and intelligent. But yet, like, she wanted the approval of this group of people so badly. And she was so sensitive to their everything they said and did. And it wasn't like she was a poser trying to be like them. She was way more original and unique than any of them. And I don't say that because I'm biased. She truly was. She truly was, is a special person. Which is what made it even more frustrating is that, like, they should be looking to her for guidance. And I was a mess. I'm not saying I was perfect. I was drinking. I was getting blackout drunk. She was having to babysit me when I was drunk. I was puking. So I'm not saying that I was in great shape at all at the time. But I did notice that like whenever I made an effort to self-improve, whenever I drew from my sources of inspiration, they conflicted with what she thought was... It, they, it basically conflicted with leftism and what's what Ted Kaczynski is talking about here. And this inferiority complex is a part of all of it. And you can see that there is a view in leftism that the people they are trying to protect and support, they have that white savior complex. You can see this with the the number of especially white women who think it's their duty to save all marginalized people. And rooted in that is this idea that they can't help themselves. And you can see the way they respond when minorities don't do what they want. You should have seen some of the things that my Facebook friends, who I know personally, you should have seen the things they were saying when it came out that a bunch of Latinos, Latinos, voted for Trumpsfeld, which was unsurprising to me. So many of the Latino people I've personally known Lean pretty far conservative. Even guys I know through metal. I have some friends who are Mexican dudes, South American dudes who live in California. I know them through metal. They lean conservative on a lot of issues. And they're metal guys. They're artists. I was unsurprised that Trumpsfeld got a surprising amount of Cubans and South, you know, Central, South American types. But the things people were saying about them, like that they weren't real Latinos, because they voted for Trumpsfeld. It's like, you see the way they treat black people, calling Larry Elder a white supremacist, a black man. Larry Elder's a black man from Compton. What else needs to be said? You're calling a black man from Compton a white supremacist because he's a Republican? So it all, it all goes back to this white savior complex where when a minority doesn't do what the left wants them to do, they call them every name in the book. They call them Uncle Toms. They mock their heritage. They say they're not a true version of their ethnic their their ethnic background. Who are you to say that about them? But again, it comes back to collectivism versus individuality. When people from minority groups act as individuals, the left hates that and they demonize those people even though that should be what they want. Shouldn't it be the goal of the left if they care about giving these people autonomy? Shouldn't it be the goal of the left to protect those people? If those people are so marginalized, if Latinos are so marginalized in American society, 
shouldn't you want them to think for themselves? Because by thinking for themselves, that comes from a place of security. It is because they feel secure in America that they can think for themselves without facing significant repercussions. But yet now you're the one trying to punish them. Now you're the one who's doing exactly what you said that other people are going to do to them. So it's funny how that works, but it's not a surprise. Not a surprise to me. Leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western... This is Teddy. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate... I think I already read this. Yeah, I already read that. Um... Let me just catch myself here. Here we go. Words like self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism, etc. play little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. The leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. He wants society to solve everyone's problems for them, satisfy everyone's needs for them, take care of them. He is not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. The leftist is antagonistic to the concept of competition because deep inside he feels like a loser. Goes back to that girlfriend I was talking about. I hate to, I hate to bring her up, you know, in context with this, but it's real life experience that I have. And that's one thing I noticed is, you know, he, Kaczynski mentioned the word optimism playing little role in the leftist vocabulary. I noticed that with my girlfriend's friends, that it seemed like any optimism, and like the only, the only form of optimism that it seemed like they would accept is like that sort of like cheap, like, you're pretty. It was very shallow. It was sort of like, it was very hollow empowerment that didn't seem to have any actual impact on the way these people felt about each other. But when anybody expressed any greater sense of optimism, anything that was truly deeply optimistic and that would help propel people forward, it seemed like that was rejected. And it seemed like even though everybody was depressed, it seemed like anything that would actually take you out of depression was discouraged. It seemed like any behavior that would actually help you become not depressed or less depressed was discouraged. They would take antidepressants, but actually changing your lifestyle in a way that is productive seemed to be discouraged. Here we go. Continuing. Art forms that appeal to modern leftist intellectuals tend to focus on sordidness, defeat, and despair, or else they take on an orgiastic tone, throwing off rational control as if there were no hope of accomplishing anything through rational calculation, and all that was left was to immerse oneself in the sensations of the moment. Modern leftish—and he's saying leftish, not leftist. I keep getting that confused. Modern leftish— Philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. It is true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined, but it is obvious that modern leftish philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. 
They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs. For one thing, their attack is an outlet for hostility, and to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies the drive for power. More importantly, the leftist hates science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true, i.e. successful, superior, and other beliefs as false, i.e. failed, inferior. The leftist's feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classification of some things as successful or superior and other things as failed or inferior. This also underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and of the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus, if a person is inferior, it is not his fault, but society's, because he has not been brought up properly. One second here. Just going to keep going. I'm kind of enjoying this. It's a, it's a change of pace, kind of reading somebody else's thoughts, giving my own feedback. One second. The leftist is not typically the kind of person whose feelings of inferiority make him a braggart, an egotist, a bully, a self-promoter, a ruthless competitor. This kind of person has not wholly lost faith in himself. He has a deficit in his sense of power and self-worth, but he can still conceive of himself as having the capacity to be strong, and his efforts to make himself strong produce his unpleasant behavior. But the leftist is too far gone for that. His feelings of inferiority are so ingrained that he cannot conceive of himself as individually strong and valuable. Hence the collectivism of the leftist. He can feel strong only as a member of a large organization or a mass movement with which he identifies himself. Notice the masochistic tendency of leftist tactics. Leftists promote Leftists protest by lying down in front of vehicles. They intentionally provoke police or racists to abuse them, etc., these tactics may often be effective, but many leftists use them not as a means to an end, but because they prefer masochistic tactics. Self-hatred is a leftist trait. I mean, we can see that with the, the trial going on now, right now. I didn't want to talk about it, but it's pretty evident in that, that that fits, you know, where this kid who, was he naive? Sure, this kid Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse. We can see where he was this naive kid who probably, you know, he's not my, not my kind of person, if I even need to say it. But you can see where, if you watch the video footage, which now people are having to begrudgingly admit has value, but the video footage shows that he was very much provoked. He was very much attacked. And it's unfortunate all around, but... Some people would rather say, oh, Kyle Rittenhouse drove a Panzer tank across state lines wearing a German World War II helmet. And he had brand new neo-Nazi tattoos that were glistening. The ink was fresh. The ink on Kyle Rittenhouse's tattoos, his neo-Nazi war eagle chest tattoo was fresh. He had just left a tattoo parlor 
after getting a swastika on his bicep. And he drove a panzer tank across straight lines to kill black people. Didn't kill any didn't kill any black people, not that it matters, but you can see where that whole thing was very masochistic. Very masochistic. Leftists may claim that their activism is motivated by compassion or by moral principles, and moral principle does play a role for the leftist of the over-socialized type, but compassion and moral principle cannot be the main motives for leftist activism. Hostility is too prominent a component of leftist behavior. So is the drive for power. Moreover, much leftist behavior is not rationally calculated to be of benefit to the people whom the leftists claim to be trying to help. For example, if one believes that affirmative action is good for black people, does it make sense to demand affirmative action in hostile or dogmatic terms? Obviously, it would be more productive to take a diplomatic and conciliatory approach that would make at least verbal and symbolic concessions to white people who think that affirmative action discriminates against them. But leftist activists, leftist activists do not take such an approach because it would not satisfy their emotional needs. Helping black people is not their real goal. Instead, race problems serve as an excuse for them to express their own hostility and frustrated need for power. In doing so, they actually harm black people because the activist hostile attitude toward the white majority tends to intensify race hatred. Summer 2020, in a nutshell. Summer 2020 in a nutshell right there. Spoken in 1995 or earlier. If our society had no social problems at all, the leftists would have to invent problems in order to provide themselves with an excuse for making a fuss. We emphasize that the foregoing does not pretend to be an accurate description of everyone who might be considered a leftist. It is only a rough indication of a general tendency of leftism. He talks a lot about over-socialization and the role that it plays in leftist psychology, the way that it influences that sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt. I don't think I'm going to read from that. I'm going to kind of skim it here and just see if there's anything of relevance. Here's a part. The leftist of the over-socialized type tries to get off his psychological leash and assert his autonomy by rebelling. But usually he is not strong enough to rebel against the most basic values of society. Generally speaking, the goals of today's leftists are not in conflict with the accepted morality. On the contrary, the left takes an accepted moral principle, adopts it as its own, and then accuses mainstream society of violating that principle. Examples, racial equality, equality of the sexes, helping poor people, peace as opposed to war, Nonviolence generally, freedom of expression, kindness to animals. More fundamentally, the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. All these have been deeply rooted all of these have been deeply rooted values of our society, or at least of its up middle and upper classes for a long time. These values are explicitly or implicitly expressed or presupposed in most of the material presented to us by the mainstream communications media and the educational system. Leftists, especially those of the over-socialized type, usually do not rebel against these principles, but justify their hostility to society 
by claiming with some degree of truth that society is not living up to these principles. Very, very accurate right there. Very good point. Where you can see that with the accusations of racism, especially during a time when race relations have significantly improved. Where most people in America generally believe in racial equality or something approximating that. And we can see where last summer, I mean, the, the one that gets me, the one that personally gets me is I've heard a lot of people from my generation say, we were never taught this. They get told something very obvious about slavery. And they say, we were never taught this in school. And I'm like, what school did you go to? Everybody I knew was taught this. I was taught this. Just because you weren't paying attention or you didn't retain it doesn't mean you weren't taught it. So people just make things up. They're claiming that the schools didn't teach them. There was a huge anti-racism campaign going on the entire time I was in school, going back to when I was in elementary school until the time I graduated high school, and I went to the Evergreen State College, so I can tell you it was still going on there. Still going on there. So I don't know where people get off on the idea that I wasn't taught this. Yeah, you were. You were taught it. You probably were just distracted, or you forgot it. And now that it's convenient... You're saying you were never taught this. It's just the most bizarre thing. And I've been pointing that out forever myself, where so much of what people are rebelling against is this manufactured rebellion. They're stating the obvious, something that most people fundamentally agree with, but they're framing it in such a way that they're the little guy standing up for what's right. Meanwhile, they're actually promoting something that most people believe in, but they're doing it in such a way that they can point a finger. They can do it with such hostility. They can turn it into such a performance that it makes it seem like they're actually standing up for something that is that it's that it's rare to stand up for that. It's the most bizarre thing to witness. But um, skimming again here, we certainly do not claim that leftists, even of the over-socialized type, never rebel against the fundamental values of our society. Clearly, they sometimes do. Some over-socialized leftists have gone so far as to, re as to rebel against one of modern society's most important principles by engaging in physical violence. By their own account, violence is for them a form of liberation. In other words, by committing violence, they break through the psychological restraints that have been trained into them. Because they are over-socialized, these restraints have been more confining for them than for others, hence their need to break free of them. But they usually justify their rebellion in terms of mainstream values. If they engage in violence, they claim to be fighting against racism or the like. Never heard of it. Summer 2020, in a nutshell again. kind of goes on about how obviously things are more complex than they can than he can elaborate on here but he talks about how so much of this is dictated by this sense of low self-esteem and powerlessness and he of course relates that to technology and the role that the industrial culture and the development of technology plays in detaching us from family 
concentrating us in cities where we don't know or like the people around us. He, he mentions loud noises, how the development of technology has forced loud noises on us, how you can't even walk without being governed by technology, because if you walk in a city, you have to stop and go at the mercy of stoplights. You have to move in along with the rhythm of cars and how even in the country it's not safe now to walk because you're walking on you're walking in rural areas with long stretches of highways that offer little safety for pedestrians i mean that's true where i live i live at the edge of the city where it becomes slightly rural and a lot of the main roads in my area don't have sidewalks and cars are going 50 miles an hour so you can see where technology he kind of gets into that how technology has made it impossible to live apart from it how we depend on cars to get ourselves around but even if you want to avoid a car how you're not safe to walk and if you walk near civilization you have to stop at stoplights because of cars so we're basically dictated in every possible way um, he talks a lot about the power process, which I won't get into, just how it used to be we, gained, we, we felt a sense of power by overcoming nature. Not necessarily overcoming nature, but learning how to survive in nature. And how as technology has developed, you know, our sense of power over our own lives and our environment has become abstracted. And so we use these surrogate activities to get a sense of power. And they could be hobbies, they could be career, they could be sex, or they could be politics. They could be science. I, don't, I won't go too far into that. Um, but he, he talks about how it re ultimately requires obedience and just minimal effort to make your basic needs met in our developed society. And so just that places even more emphasis on surrogate activities, which don't end up being satisfying unto themselves, and how we lack autonomy. We are dependent. You know, nature is cruel, but when you live in nature, you at least have a sense of autonomy. Of course, the role of stress won't get into that here. I just want to, this is just an excuse for me to rant about leftism. That's all I'm doing. No, I recommend reading it. I recommend reading it from start to finish. It's a fascinating, I mean, even if you don't agree, you know, you don't have to agree with this to find it interesting. You don't have to agree with what Ted Kaczynski did to find this interesting. And I think most people could find points they agree with. And, you know, the severity of his actions, his murder, his moiterous actions, it does add weight to what he's saying. This is a guy who had strong convictions, who truly believed in what he was saying. He lived it. Did he make the right decisions? Well, I already said I wasn't going to make any disclaimers. Did he choose the right targets? You know, you can come to that conclusion yourself because I think the answer is pretty clear. I think the answer is pretty clear as to whether or not Ted Kaczynski made the right decisions in life, spiritually, ethically. I think that answer should be pretty obvious. You don't have to be over-socialized 
to come to a conclusion about Ted Kaczynski's behavior. But as far as his thoughts, I think you can detach yourself and look at this from an objective view. But again, I don't, going back before I continue on, because I think there's a little bit I'd like to read more. Might as well make this a three-hour episode, right? Um, But going back to uh, my leftist friends who are like, oh, yeah, like I, I totally, you know, I, I honestly agree with him. I wonder how they could read all of this scathing criticism of leftism and be like, I agree with him. Honestly, if they actually read what he had to say, they'd probably be, they'd probably just be like, he was a moiterer and a bigot and a bigot. They'd probably just dismiss him. If they actually knew what he said about leftism and social activism those leftists who pretend to be into Ted Kaczynski because he's an eco-terrorist rebel, if they actually read some of the things that I'm reading here, they'd probably be like, oh, so he's just another... He probably would have voted for Trumpsfeld. Sounds like a Trumpsfeld terrorist supporter. He probably would have been in on January 6th. Oh, if Ted Kaczynski was out of prison, he probably would have participated in January 6th. I feel like that's what they would actually that's probably the conclusion they would come to if they actually read, read what he had to say they'd be wrong but still you know, he talks a lot about people's needs how they get their needs met the role that industry and technology has played on that how people adjust to that the ways they cope with that here's what i wanted to read though before i end this the motives of scientists I'm just going to start reading. Science and technology provide the most important examples of surrogate activities. Some scientists claim that they are motivated by curiosity or by a desire to benefit humanity. But it is easy to see that neither of these can be the principal motive of most scientists. As for curiosity, that notion is simply absurd. Most scientists work on highly specialized problems that are not the object of any normal curiosity. For example, is an astronomer, a mathematician, or an entomologist curious about the properties of isopropyl trimethylmethane? I don't know how to say that. Of course not. Only a chemist is curious about such a thing, and he is curious about it only only because chemistry is his surrogate activity. Is the chemist curious about the appropriate classification of a new species of beetle? No. That question is of interest only to the entomologist, and he is interested in it only because entomology is his surrogate activity. If the chemist and the entomologist had to exert themselves seriously to obtain the physical physical necessities, and if that effort exercised their abilities in an interesting way, but in some non-scientific pursuit, then they wouldn't give a damn about isopropyl trimethylene or the classification of beetles. Suppose that lack of funds for postgraduate education had led the chemist to become an insurance broker instead of a chemist. In that case, he would have been very interested in insurance matters, but would have cared nothing about isopropyl trimethylene. In any case, it is not normal to to put into the satisfaction of mere curiosity the amount of time and effort that scientists put into their work. The curiosity explanation for the scientist's motive just doesn't stand up. And I think it should be noted here that he was obviously a scientist of some kind himself. I know he was a mathematician. 
he built bombs, you know? So, I mean, I think it's, I think that Ted Kaczynski's commentary about the sciences are particularly relevant because he was no stranger to them. He was literate. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even pronounce that word. I'm not literate in the sciences. Ted Kaczynski was, is. Continuing, the benefit of humanity explanation doesn't work any better. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most, most of archaeology or comparative linguistics, for example, most of comparative... Butchered that one. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most of archaeology or comparative linguistics, for example. Some other areas of science present obvious, obviously dangerous possibilities. Yet scientists in these areas are just as enthusiastic about their work as those who develop vaccines or study air pollution. Consider the case of Dr. Edward Teller, who had an obvious emotional involvement in promoting nuclear power plants. Did this involvement stem from a desire to benefit humanity? If so, then why didn't Dr. Teller get emotional about other humanitarian causes? If he was such a humanitarian, then why did he help to develop the H-bomb? As with many other scientific achievements, it is very much open to question whether nuclear power plants actually do benefit humanity. Does the cheap electricity outweigh the accumulating waste, the waste and the risk of accidents? Dr. Teller saw only one side of the question. Clearly, his emotional involvement with nuclear power arose not from a desire to benefit humanity, but from a personal fulfillment he got from his work and from seeing it put to practical use. The same is true of scientists generally. With possible rare exceptions, their motive is neither curiosity nor a desire to benefit humanity, but the need to go through the power process, to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain the goal, solution of the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work itself. Of course, it's not that simple. Other motives do play a role for many scientists. Money and status, for example. Some scientists may be persons of the type who have an insatiable drive for status, and this may provide much of the motivation for their work. No doubt the majority of scientists, like the majority of the general population, are more or less susceptible to advertising and marketing techniques and need money to satisfy their cravings for, good and, for goods and services. Thus, science is not a pure surrogate activity, but it is in large part a surrogate activity. Also, science and technology constitute a power-mass movement, and many scientists gratify their need for power through identification with this mass movement. You ever heard of trust the science? You ever heard of trust the science? The science is settled. We can see that right now, where science has completely congealed as a mass movement, but that's my commentary. Here he goes. Thus science marches on blindly, without regard to the real welfare of the human race or to any other standard, obedient only to the psychological needs of the scientists and of the government officials and corporation executives who provide the funds for research. He talks about freedom, obviously ever relevant. I think one little interesting comment he makes is 
Most of the Indian nations of New England were monarchies, and many of the cities of the Italian Renaissance were controlled by dictators. But in reading about these societies, one gets the impression that they allowed far more personal freedom than our society does. In part, this was because they lacked efficient mechanisms for enforcing the ruler's will. There were no modern, well-organized police forces, no rapid long-distance communications, no surveillance cameras, no dossiers of information about the lives of average citizens. Hence, it was relatively easy to evade control. Interesting observation there. We hear about dictators from the past, but dictators from centuries past had far less ability to observe and control us just technologically speaking. I've never really thought about that before. I'd have to think about it a little bit further, but just a basic reading tells me that's probably pretty true. How today a leader can be less of an overt dictator or the leadership class in general and exert far more dictatorial totalitarian control over us. And I think that's what's taking place now in America, in my opinion. I believe that we are subject to a high degree of what in the past would be considered totalitarianism, but it is done so casually through technology, through the means of communication that are now available, especially with the internet, that a leader doesn't have to appear as a dictator in order to achieve the same results or even more strict results. Talks a lot about rights, constitutional rights, just different values journalism. I'd like to talk about it, but I'm just going to gloss over here because I I could honestly read this entire thing. Talks a lot about the nature of change, the difference between small changes and large changes, especially with regards to revolution and the way that that would manifest in an industrial technological revolution, especially one that is designed to dismantle industry and technology. He talks too about how his, his goal is destructive by nature. It intends to destroy this system, but you can't very well have a revolution that has only negative goals. But he uses nature as the counterpoint to that, which is that nature would be the focus. And so nature would be the goal. A state of nature would be the goal. An interesting idea. I don't know how I think of, I don't know what to think about it, honestly. He's aware of the fact that a revolution by nature has to have some sort of constructive goal rather than just pure destruction. And even though his focus is on destroying the current system, he sees nature as the positive, constructive goal, using nature as the system that we live by. I like the idea. I like the philosophy of that. It's difficult to see it playing out. But of course, you know, I'm coming from the point of view here of of not being like, Ted Kaczynski had the best plan. How come we don't just follow Ted Kaczynski's plan? All you Democrats and Republicans are talking about all your ideas for the future. Why don't we just listen to Ted Kaczynski? You know, I'm not coming from that point of view at all. I'm mainly just using this manifesto, looking at this manifesto and pointing out where he was on the money, where his criticisms and observations were spot on. I'm not coming from the point of view of listen to this, listen to his ideas about what to do. 
Let's follow his advice. You know, I'm not coming from that point of view here. Some of his ideas I, I do believe we could put into practice, but, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know. It's hard to do anything, man. He goes on about how the restriction of freedom is unavoidable in industrial society, how by its very nature, a technological industrial society has to restrict our freedom in order to operate and how it uses propaganda to do that. And he mentions that it's not just, it's not simply overt propaganda. It's not what we imagine. It's not essentially advertisements, how it's far more insidious than that. And I do believe we're seeing that play out. I think it might always be playing out, but we're seeing it come to the forefront right now. And how this system is designed to modify human behavior. And so much of what this technological industrial system is doing is trying to change who we are. Because who we are is incompatible with this system. I agree with that. As he says, in any technologically advanced society, the individual's fate must depend on decisions that he personally cannot influence to any great extent. A technological society cannot be broken down into small autonomous communities because production depends on the cooperation of very large numbers of people and machines. Such a society must be highly organized and decisions have to be made that affect very large numbers of people. When a decision affects, say, a million people, then each of the affected individuals has, on average, only a one millionth share in making the decision. What usually happens in practice is that decisions are made by public officials or corporation executives or by technical specialists. But even when the public votes on a, on a decision, the number of voters ordinarily is too large for the vote of any one individual to be significant. Thus, most individuals are unable to influence measurably the major decisions that affect their lives. There is no conceivable way to remedy this in a technologically advanced society. The system tries to solve this problem by using propaganda to make people want the decisions that have been made for them. But even if this solution were completely successful in making people feel better, it would be demeaning. Conservatives and some other conservatives and some others advocate more local autonomy. Local communities once did have autonomy, but such autonomy becomes less and less possible as local communities become more enmeshed with and dependent on large-scale systems like public utilities, computer networks, highway systems, the mass communications media, the modern healthcare system. Also operating against autonomy is the fact that technology applied in one location often affects people at other locations far away. Thus, pesticide or chemical use near a creek may contaminate the water supply hundreds of miles downstream, and the greenhouse, effects, the greenhouse effect affects the whole world. It talks about how the system can't be modified to satisfy human needs, that human behavior has to be modified to meet the needs of the system. And this has nothing to do with political or social ideology guiding the technological system. It's the fault of technology itself because the system is not guided by ideology but by technical necessity. Let's see here. 
yeah, I could, there's a lot in this. It's very dense. This is this, I recommend reading it again. I recommend getting into this. As he says, the bad parts of technology cannot be separated from the good parts. This is what I always say about science, which is that science loves to take credit for its more superficially beneficial developments. Oh, we developed, oh, you can thank, thank a scientist for medicine. You can thank a scientist for your smartphone. You can thank a scientist for your alarm clock. It helps you get up to go to work. Oh, you can thank a scientist for coming up with that idea. But science never takes credit. Scientists never take credit for horror. They never take credit for the horrible things that are a byproduct of science, technology, and engineering. And so you can't separate, you know, in technology, we, people are very critical of technology, but they seem to separate it from science, which doesn't make sense to me. I've never understood how people are able to separate science from technology, even though they're both part of the STEM acronym. It seems that when it comes to people's criticisms of technology, specifically as it relates to pollution, you know, even all these people who blame social media for all of our current social issues, which again, that's just a symptom. It's not the source. Anybody who tries to say that social media is the source of social problems is very short-sighted. And uh, what they don't acknowledge is who put that shit out there. These are scientists. Oh, my girlfriend's addicted to her smartphone. She's always looking at social media and getting upset. Who put a smartphone in her hands? Who gave her that? Who provided the technology that is causing these problems in your relationship? That's the same person who's going to say, trust the science. Trust the science. You know, it's the same person. They don't realize that the science put that smartphone in your hand that upsets you. And it makes you dependent on it. You can't actually exist without one. My friend Angelo went to Korea to try to teach a couple months ago, and he had to leave. You had to have a Korean smartphone to even get a hotel. You can't do anything there without a local Korean smartphone now. You truly can't. He couldn't even get inside his apartment. He had an apartment provided for him by the school he was going to teach for, and you needed a Korean smartphone with a code to even get inside the apartment. He didn't have a key. You had to use a smartphone. So it's like you cannot exist in this society without a smartphone now. Of course, Ted Kaczynski talks all about the way that technology is first introduced as a convenience, and then it quickly becomes mandatory, and we never walk it back. We never say, oh, okay, we, we had that. It caused us too much grief and stress. Let's walk it back. Once it's introduced, it's there. And even if it's bad, we like to separate you know, the good and the bad and be like, oh, thank an engineer. Thank a, thank a scientist. And as he said, it's like the same guy who was developing nuclear energy worked on the H-bomb. Trust the science. Trust the H-bomb. You know, I, people make these distinctions in their mind when these are all part of the same process. And as he says, technology, he has a section titled, Technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. We can see that now. The momentum that goes into 
pushing technology further and further, becoming more dependent on it, is a greater ideal in our culture, in our world, than freedom itself. And we are willing to restrict our freedom in the name of technology. We don't actually do it in the name of technology, but that's playing a very large role in what's happening. And he talks about how when a new technolo- when a new technological development comes out, it appears to be desirable. It appears to make our lives better, but we become dependent on it. We become dependent on this system of constant development. And once it's introduced, it's not too long before we rely entirely on it. see here technology advances with great rapidity and threatens freedom at many different points at the same time crowding rules and regulations increasing dependence of individuals on large organizations propaganda and other psychological techniques genetic engineering invasion of privacy through surveillance devices and computers etc to hold back any one to hold back any one of the threats to freedom would require a long and difficult social struggle. Those who want to protect freedom are overwhelmed by the sheer number of new attacks and the rapidity with which they develop. Hence, they become apathetic and no longer resist. To fight each of the threats separately would be futile. Success can be hoped for only by fighting the technological system as a whole, but that is revolution, not reform. Technicians, we use this term, I don't need to go into that. Um, Actually, I will, I'll read that. Technicians, we use this term in its broad sense to describe all those who perform a specialized task that requires training, tend to be so involved in their work, their surrogate activity, that when a conflict arises between their technical work and freedom, they almost always decide in favor of their technical work. This is obvious in the case of scientists, but it also appears elsewhere. Educators, humanitarian groups, conservation organizations do not hesitate to use propaganda or other psychological techniques to help them achieve their laudable ends. Corporations and government agencies, when they find it useful, do not hesitate to collect information about individuals without regard to their privacy. Law enforcement agencies are frequently inconvenienced by the constitutional rights of suspects, and often of completely innocent persons, and they do whatever they can do legally, or sometimes illegally, to restrict or circumvent those rights. Most of these educators, government officials, and law officers believe in freedom, privacy, and constitutional rights, but when these conflict with their work, they usually feel that their work is more important. It is well known that people generally work better and more persistently when striving for a reward than when attempting to avoid a punishment or negative outcome. Scientists and other technicians are motivated mainly by the rewards they get through their work, but those who oppose technological invasions of freedom are working to avoid a negative outcome. Consequently, there are few who work persistently and well at this discouraging task. 
If reformers ever achieved a signal victory that seemed to set up a solid barrier against further erosion of freedom through through technical (laughs) technical progress, most would tend to relax and turn their attention to more agreeable pursuits. But the scientists would remain busy in their laboratories, and technology as it progresses would find ways, in spite of any barriers, to exert more and more control over individuals and make them always more dependent on the system. No social arrangements, whether laws, institutions, customs, or ethical codes, can provide permanent protection against technology. History shows that all social arrangements are transitory. They all change or break down eventually. But technological advances are permanent within the context of a given civilization. Suppose, for example, that it were possible to arrive at some social arrangements that would prevent genetic engineering from being applied to human beings or prevent it from being applied in such a way as to prevent such a way as to threaten freedom and dignity. Still, the technology would remain waiting. Sooner or later, the social arrangement would break down, probably sooner, given the pace of change in our society. Then genetic engineering would begin to invade our sphere of freedom, and this invasion would be irreversible, short of a breakdown of technological civilization itself. Any illusions about achieving anything permanent through social arrangements should be dispelled by what is currently happening with environmental legislation. A few years ago, it seemed there were severe legal barriers, secure legal barriers, preventing at least some of the worst forms of environmental degradation. A change in the political wind and those barriers begin to crumble. I mean, we can see where he was talking about genetic engineering there, and we can see where that's playing out right now with the vac. The vacuum? The The vaccine? Are you talking about the vacuum or the vaccine? talking about both. Ted Kaczynski's talking about both the vacuum and the vaccine. Now we can see where that played out where initially there were some barriers with the vaccine. It was introduced and it was said like, hey, you can get this vaccine if you want. You want the vaccine? And then pretty soon it's, you should really get it. You should really get it. And then soon thereafter, it's, you have to get it. If you want to work, you want to work at your job? You want to work at your job? You got to get it. You know, you can see where the the social framework of that has changed so rapidly, and it's almost unavoidable. Because the VAC came into existence, it was inevitable that there would be increasing pressure to genetically engineer yourself. Whether you agree with the VAC, disagree, or if you're like me, where you're largely indifferent or ambivalent, you can see that there's immense pressure to get it. Everybody would agree to that. They might not like to admit it, but they would have to, because that's what's going on. For all of the foregoing reasons, technology is a more powerful social force than the aspiration for freedom. But this statement requires an important qualification. It appears that during the next several decades, the industrial technological system will be undergoing severe stresses due to economic and environmental problems, and especially due to problems of human behavior, alienation, rebellion, hostility, a variety of social and psychological difficulties. We hope that the stresses through which the system is likely to pass will cause it to break down, or at least will weaken it sufficiently so that a revolution against it becomes possible. 
If such a revolution occurs and is successful, then at that particular moment, the aspiration for freedom will have proved more powerful than technology. Had to get a little creative there. It's fun to read in old-timey voices, like an old-timey newsreel narrator. A lot of very relevant observations here. I'm skimming. I'm still here. I'm, st I'm still here. It talks about our general inability to solve problems. We don't see a, you know, we don't solve our problems. When problems come as a byproduct of technology and industry, it's very difficult for us to solve them. And so as they become that much more complex and compounded, it becomes that much harder to solve them. Let's see here. He's very... He believes that revolution is more realistic than reform. He doesn't believe that our culture, our society can be reformed. He believes that it has to be dismantled via revolution and that while revolution will cause pain, he believes that that is less pain than the pain being caused currently and in the future by our current system. There's an argument to be made there. Whether mailing bombs to people is the right approach, you know, that's another story, but he makes a good point about revolution, the pain of revolution potentially being less painful in the grand scheme of things than the trajectory we're currently on. I don't know that I agree with that. It's hard. For, it's very difficult for me to support revolution of any kind. My tune might change about that someday. I don't know. And revolution, I mean, it's just revolutions are often so bloody. It's hard for me to justify a revolution of any kind, even though we can see that there have been good revolutions or revolutions that have been, you could say, a net positive. But they're also so prone to manipulation. But he's a strong believer, as I am, that... A committed minority, and by that I just minority in a numerical sense, not in an ethnic sense, but a, a committed minority is more powerful than a non-committal majority. And that's the point I was making during the BLM riots and the hysteria surrounding it where people were like, agree, you need to agree. Because you build weak links in your chain when you force people to join. A lot of people were coerced into agreeing with the BLM movement last year and to some degree in the years previous, but definitely last summer or summer 2020. And I was thinking, why do you want weak links to join your chain? Why do you because when you coerce people and pressure them to join you, they're not going to be there for the, the long haul. When things get bad, you can't rely on those people. So he understood that. Ted Kaczynski understood that. And he was saying basically that you need a short but strong chain 
rather than a long chain filled with weak links. He doesn't use that metaphor. I like I use that metaphor, but it certainly applies to what he's talking about. He deals, you know, a lot of what he talks about is the control of human behavior. Anti, or uh, he talks a lot about psychological drugs, entertainment. Ideas that I think most people, I think most people who are familiar with this are aware of. The way that um, he, he makes a good point where he says that if society gave us a way to alleviate stress, they would only add more stress to our lives to compensate. So if they alleviated stress society or if not society the the powers that be i don't like to use society as this omnipotent force i think enough people do that i avoid that myself i don't like to blame society i think it's it's really easy to jump to that and it means nothing so i don't do it i avoid it at least but the powers that be that's vague, but I think we can still kind of figure out what I'm talking about there when I say the powers that be. You know, they, uh, Ted Kaczynski is of the belief that if drugs were given to people to alleviate stress and you chose not to take those drugs, you would be at a disadvantage because society would compensate by adding more stress to people's lives to counteract the increased capacity people have to deal with stress. And so if you're not taking anti-stress drugs, you would feel the full weight of the added stress. He wasn't using that as a, a real-world example, but there's a point in, in there for sure. Talks about education. About our the way our definition of child abuse has changed, has become distorted how most people would agree that child abuse is a problem. But the definition of that tends to change. And we can see that now, as I mentioned before, we're suddenly not allowing your kid to change their gender permanently when they're at a young age is seen as child abuse. He doesn't talk about that because that wasn't going on then. But we can see where as real child abuse has become less and less of a problem, which I believe it has. Very few. I was never hit. Neither of my parents have ever hit me. None of my friends were hit. Very few people were abused that I know of. And I think I would know. You know, with some families I spent a lot of time around, I know that they weren't secretly hitting their kids with my good friends and everything. Here's, here's where he talks about gene therapy. Presumably research, will, presumably, research will continue to increase the effectiveness of psychological techniques for controlling human behavior. But we think it is unlikely that psychological techniques alone will be sufficient to adjust human beings to the kind of society that technology is creating. Bio, biological methods probably will have to be used. We have already mentioned the use of drugs in this connection. Neurology may provide other avenues for modifying the human mind. 
Genetic engineering of human beings is already beginning to occur in the form of gene therapy, and there is no reason to assume that such methods will not eventually be used to modify those aspects of the body that affect mental functioning. So he was well aware of the role that gene therapy could play. I don't know. I'm, I'm not particularly conspiratorial about that, but it's worth considering. I don't think people are stupid or off base for showing, for having reluctance to the idea of gene therapy myself. He, he talks about how we seem to be entering a period where industrial society has escalated to a point where it's causing significant distress on people, severe stress, as he says, economic and environmental problems. I think we're seeing that now. That seems to be something that people are always predicting. You know, you could throw a dart at a, you know, you could throw a dart at a chart listing all of these words, and you're eventually going to hit economic and environmental disaster. It's not that he's Nostradami. It's not that he's a prophet. But he could sense that something is building. I think it was inevitable. I think what we're experiencing now was inevitable. As he says, the social disruption that we see today is certainly not the result of mere chance. It can only be a result of the conditions of life that the system imposes on people. We have argued that the most important of these conditions is disruption of the power process. And just to add to that, you know, I didn't really read about the power process, but basically he says that we've abstracted and removed people's ability to participate in the natural power process, which is to say having autonomy over their own lives. If the systems succeed, if the systems succeed in imposing sufficient control over human behavior to assure its own survival, a new watershed in human history will have been passed. Whereas formerly the limits of human endurance have imposed limits on the development of societies, industrial technological society will be able to pass those limits by modifying human beings, whether by psychological methods or biological methods or both. In the future, social systems will not be adjusted to suit the needs of human beings. Instead, human beings will be adjusted to suit the needs of the system. Generally speaking, technological control over human behavior will probably not be introduced with a totalitarian intention or even through a conscious desire to restrict human freedom. Each new step in the assertion of control over the human mind will be taken as a rational response to a problem that faces society, such as curing alcoholism, reducing the crime rate, or inducing young people to study science and engineering. In many cases, there will be a humanitarian justification. For example, when a psychiatrist prescribes an antidepressant for a depressed patient, he is clearly doing that individual a favor. It would be inhumane to withhold the drug from someone who needs it. When parents send their children to Sylvan Learning Centers to have them manipulated into becoming enthusiastic about their studies, they do so from concern for their children's welfare. It may be that some of these parents wish that one didn't have it may be that some of these parents wish that one didn't have to have specialized training to get a job and that, and that their kid didn't have to be brainwashed into becoming a computer nerd. But what can they do? They can't change society and their child may be unemployable if he doesn't have certain skills. So they send him to Sylvan. Interestingly, my sister went to Sylvan Learning Center. 
I don't know. It was one of those places. It was like a, they help you, you know, they help you out. I think my sister went there for math. I don't really come from a, a particularly math. I think all, I think all of the kids, I think me and both of my sisters all had struggles in math at different points. Not a math family. Thus, control over human behavior will be introduced not by a calculated decision of the authorities, but through a process of social evolution, rapid evolution, however. The process will be impossible to resist because each advance, considered by itself, will appear to be beneficial, or at least the evil involved in making the advance will appear to be beneficial, or at least the evil involved in making the advance will seem to be less than that which would result from not making it. Propaganda, for example, is used for many good purposes, such as discouraging child abuse or race hatred. Sex education is obviously useful, yet the effect of sex education, to the extent that it is successful, is to take the shaping of sexual attitudes away from the family and put it in the hands of the state as represented by the public school system. Obviously, a lot of different ways that that paragraph applies does apply to the VAC applies to a lot of things. Our society tends to regard as a sickness any mode of thought or behavior that is inconvenient for the system. And this is plausible because when an individual doesn't fit into the system, it causes pain to the individual as well as problems for the system. Thus, the manipulation of an individual to adjust him to the system is seen as a cure for a sickness, and therefore as good. Talks about how the introduction of new technology is always seen as initially optional, but does not necessarily remain optional, because the new technology tends to change society in such a way that it becomes difficult or impossible for an individual to function without using that technology. I already kind of covered that. That's what I was, this is the part I was referring to when I mentioned it. But he even relates that to mass entertainment, how mass entertainment is optional. No law requires us to watch television, listen to the radio, or read magazines. Yet mass entertainment is a means of escape and stress reduction on which most of us have become dependent. Everyone complains about the trashiness of television, but almost everyone watches it. A few have kicked the TV habit, but it would be a rare person who could get along today without using any form of mass entertainment. Yet until quite recently in human history, most people got along very nicely with no other entertainment than that which each local community created for itself. Without the entertainment industry, the system probably would not have been able to get away with putting as much stress-producing pressure on us as it does. A good point. However, I do wonder, like, you know, thinking about local communities producing their own entertainment and you could take that back to a primitive tribe and say, yeah, people through oral storytelling, they passed down stories. But I wonder if there would have been a Ted Kaczynski, like even in a primitive tribe, I wonder if there would have been a, a Ted Kaczynski who was like, you know, telling stories around the campfire is just a way to cope with stress. And he might have a point. There's religion, you know, it's kind of like uh, certain branches of fundamentalist Islam not allowing musical instruments or music. There might always be someone, no matter what the technology is, no matter what the contemporary technology is, there might always be someone, a Luddite, who's like, that's just 
propaganda. And they might be right, but I, I think it might be unavoidable. But I think we can see where modern entertainment is its own form of sickness, so I would agree with that to some extent. That there is a definite difference between a local community, like a tribe producing its own organic entertainment, versus mass-produced, widespread entertainment. And, you know, he doesn't even mention the internet in there because people weren't using it in 1995 to the extent they are now. I can only imagine what he would think. Based on what he already says, I can, I can, I can actually imagine. I, it's not that I can't imagine. I, I can imagine. I think that if, if Ted Kaczynski hadn't been arrested in the mid-90s, this manifesto would have been unimaginably long. If he wrote this manifesto in 2020, it would be exponentially longer. There would be so much to cover. I don't know that it would necessarily add that much more. It would just give him more examples because I think he already identified the patterns. He was already aware of what was going on. So it's not that he needed newer examples, but I think it would have given him a lot more to think about. Maybe too much. Maybe it would have overwhelmed him. Maybe he just would have been addicted to the internet and never would have killed anybody. Maybe he would have just been posting on some forum. You never know. I think he would be much angrier if he, if he saw. Because everything that he's commenting on here, it's not that the internet created it, but I think it made it that much more explicit. And that's why even normal people get online and are so angry. So a guy like this who is already... And, you know, I have to say, too, something about this manifesto, it doesn't come across angry. It's critical. But he manages he managed to withhold his emotions. And we don't know a lot about his emotions. We know he had a lot of hate inside of him because you don't bomb people without having a certain amount of hate in your heart. Hate in your heart. Hate in, you say hate in your heart? Um, you don't do that without having a certain amount of hate in your heart. But I, I've read some of his letters. I've read his analysis of Timothy McVeigh. Because they did time together. He manages to keep his emotions in check, even when he's talking about this, something that he obviously felt very passionate about, something that he was willing to kill people over. You know, he talks about public resistance. He says, To those who think that all of this sounds like science fiction, we point out that yesterday's science fiction is today's fact. The Industrial Revolution has radically altered man's environment and way of life, and it is only to be expected that as technology is increasingly applied to the human body and mind, man himself will be altered as radically as his environment and way of life have been. Let's see here. talking about humans at a crossroads, suffering, the future. Gonna kinda, I'm just going to gloss over this. It's good. Because, see, he kind of goes off into, you know, the middle of this, he kind of goes into abstraction a little bit before he returns to and talks about his goals. 
and his approach and his philosophy before returning to that criticism of leftism that he closes with, that I started with, because we did this in sort of a a strange, chopped-up order. This is kind of a collage. This is me collaging some of his ideas together. He thinks people who have the right approach should have as many children as possible. He talks about how ideas are hereditary, and it doesn't make a difference. As he says, it doesn't make a difference between nature and nurture if the result is the same. He says, in either case, those qualities are passed on. So he says, nature and nurture don't really make a difference if the end result is the same. It's an interesting observation. He says, an argument likely to be raised against our proposed revolution is that it is bound to fail because it is claimed throughout history technology has always progressed, never regressed, hence technological regression is impossible. But he says that's false and gives some examples. He talks about when Rome fell apart, how some of their technology, the aqueducts and roads fell apart and were not rebuilt until a significant amount of time later whereas more immediate technology stayed in use, more practical technology. But some of the the larger technology that the Roman Empire was using, he says, fell apart for a significant duration of time. So he seems to feel that that supports his idea that his revolution would similarly cause certain technology to go into disuse or to at least not be preserved for a period. And how... uh, you know, he talks about how, like, so few people have certain specialized skills, like knowing how to build a refrigerator, to build the components of a refrigerator. I think he makes a good argument. He kind of makes a, I don't know if you'd call it a reductionist argument, but talking about just the way that so few people actually have the specialized knowledge and the means to do these things, that given the right set of circumstances, it would be very easy to dismantle the means to produce some of this technology. I mean, I still can't wrap my brain around how it's ma- how things are made. I still have a hard time wrapping my brain around the fact that everything I'm surrounded by at this very moment in my house, and this isn't even the strangest stuff out in the world, but just even the stuff in my house, it's almost beyond my comprehension, not only that someone could make it, using materials available on earth but that they could mass produce it and make it uniform and show no human hand like it's one thing to look at pieces of wooden furniture but when i look at the tv the computer the fridge the phones it's beyond my comprehension that these things were made using elements found on earth even just the color alone Yeah, he's, this is the part where he gets back into leftism that I already read. So I'm gonna, that's, that's it. I, I, the, there's no way to, for me to find one definitive statement that closes out this little reading. Par, a par, this was a partial reading and analysis of Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. A lot to think about, and I highly, highly recommend, if you found it interesting, to read it yourself, because that's really the only way to process something. 
I did my best to simply read what he wrote and add just a little bit of my own commentary. Kind of a different direction for this show that's good. I mean, this one's obviously going to end at about three hours, which is interesting. A long one. But it's kind of nice to take someone else's ideas, especially coming from a severe thinker. I mean, it shouldn't take away from his words that he did what he did. It should tell you that this guy was very serious about this. And I think it's hard to disagree with many of his observations. Whether you agree with his message, he makes it clear that he has a message. He's not saying that he doesn't have an agenda. He's making it very clear he had an agenda. If nothing else, it should give you pause about the way we operate, just that momentum, the unending momentum. And we can see what's going on with the supply chain issue. I don't even know. I don't understand it. It's difficult for me to understand it. They have excuses. They have explanations. I very rarely see a simple description of why supply chains are being halted. And they're affecting me less than other parts of the country. I see prices going up. I see certain products not showing up. But it's impacting me far less because I'm in a coastal West Coast city. I believe if you're more reliant on trucks, if you live inland, you're more likely to see the impact. And I see things online about that. I see photos where there's entire aisles of grocery stores that are completely empty. So far, I haven't seen anything like that. In one very surreal set of photos I saw, a grocery store had professionally printed photos of products, life-size, and they just placed those over the empty aisles. So at first glance, it looked like the, the aisles were stocked. But if you lifted up the paper, you saw that the, the aisles were empty. Very bizarre. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of stuff like that. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see this paper reality, you know, where they just paper over things because they're doing that mentally. They're doing that psychologically with so many things. You know, there's a lot of denial, you know, with this Kyle kid on trial. I saw where a Pulitzer-winning journalist claimed that no cities were burning during summer 2020. I saw extensive video footage. There was even that famous CNN footage where the police station is burning in the background. There's just fire behind the reporter, and the caption said, fiery but mostly peaceful protests. That one made its rounds because it was just, if, if that didn't undermine mainstream media's credibility, what will? But the fact that a Pulitzer-winning journalist is saying that it was fabricated, that cities were, that parts of cities, and, and maybe he's making the point that, oh, you know, entire cities didn't boil down. Well, of course, an entire city didn't. There were massive fires going on in certain cities in Washington, D.C., in Minnesota. Many cities had fires raging. And the way they covered this kid, 
You know, you don't have to be one of these right-wing pundits who's like, he's a hero. But at the same time, I don't think he's a horrible kid from what I can see. You know, he just ended up in a horrible place. And that's all I'm going to say about him, except for the fact that he, Kyle Rittenhouse, drove a panzer tank across straight, state lines to kill a bunch of peaceful protesters. He killed, it was amazing too. There are some people who came out and said Kyle Rittenhouse killed black people. Which if the circumstances were identical, it shouldn't matter what the races were. But it's amazing that people don't even know what they're talking about. They have opinion, they form their opinions and they have no idea what even happened. He drove a panzer tank across state lines wearing a German World War II helmet He had a Nazi armband on. And when they arrested him, they lifted up the Nazi armband. And there was a brand new Nazi eagle tattoo. And it glistened because the ink was fresh. You might as well just say that about the kid. And there was a letter from Ted Kaczynski in his pocket. Ted Kaczynski, he'd be interesting to write to, but why do it? What would you get out of that? What would he get out of that? He'd be an interesting prisoner to communicate with, but it would just be an ego exercise just to say, like, oh, I wrote to Ted Kaczynski. Hey, Ted, what what do you think about the internet? What do you think of chat rooms? What do you have you heard of this thing, Ted, called social meteor? What would you even say to him? And then you would just get yourself put on some list. Man. It's an intense manifesto because it's not filled with rage. It's apparent in his manifesto that he went to great lengths to remain as objective as he could, given the severity of his thinking. But he's a good example of what not to do. Now that I, you know, I'm not giving any disclaimers, but I've used him as an example on this show of the bad wizard. Because you have a guy like Dick Pernecki, if you're familiar with Dick Pernecki, he was a guy decades ago, I want to say in the 60s or 70s, and he moved to, a. there was a documentary about him, an old time documentary, and he moved to rural Alaska, which is most of Alaska, he moved to the middle of nowhere in Alaska and built a little cabin and somebody would fly a seaplane in to give him supplies he built everything by hand. He was an older man. And he lived a very peaceful life within the elements. And you have to wonder, you know, why Teddy couldn't just do that. Why he couldn't be a good wizard. It's like the difference between uh, Gandalf and Soromon. Why did Soromon become an evil wizard? Why did he become corrupted? But then we wouldn't know about Ted Kaczynski otherwise. It's like fate. When people say everything is meant to be... You have to look at people's lives that way. And, you know, in some strange way, Ted Kaczynski fulfilled his purpose. But if you believe in reincarnation, he's certainly going to have to do it again. He certainly didn't achieve enlightenment. Even though you read what he said, and it's filled with enlightening ideas, not spiritually enlightening, but that's one component that is missing from his manifesto, and I'm not aware of 
this playing a role in Ted Kaczynski's life, spirituality. Because many people who choose his lifestyle, because he basically chose the life of a monk. He built his own hermitage, something that, you know, I, I talked on, on here about Song Chol, the South Korean monk who built a cabin or a monastery of his own in the mountains of Korea, a place I've been. I haven't, I haven't been to his, I haven't been to his mountain, but I've been to the Korean mountains and it was a, it was a spiritually enlightening place for me, just visiting. I had a very enlightening experience climbing that mountain, physically enlightening. And so, in that in that way, I relate to someone like Song Chol, you know. But when he built his hermitage in the Korean mountains, he surrounded it with barbed wire so nobody could get in. When his mom came to visit, when he was deep in his practice he refused to even see her and one of the other monks said to say come on you, you, re- you really got to see your mom your mom came all this way to visit you you really got to see your mom and he did he relented and visited with his mom but it's not that far off in the grand scheme of things it's like the other side of the coin from a ted kaczynski but we can see, like as I've talked about many times, because it's so striking of an example, but after the revolution in Korea, you had monks hiring thugs to firebomb other monks with Molotov cocktails. So monks become bad wizards. Ted Kaczynski had something in common with at least some of the Korean monks, where they just couldn't resist bombing people they disagreed with. But you wonder if, you know, he, he obviously fulfilled his purpose in some twisted way. And then a guy like me can read what he said and detach myself from that, because that's his life. You know, you read about someone like Ted Kaczynski, and it's very easy to be like, well, I have to give this disclaimer before I talk about him. When I read his writing, I have to view it. I, I have to read it in the voice of a moiterer but you don't you can read it for exactly what it is and that's my goal here today my goal was to read his manifesto objectively and i feel that it was written fairly objectively given how subjective his view was and just give a little commentary because it is eternally relevant it is fascinating It is filled with little epiphanies. But they're the sort of epiphanies that confirm what you already feel, at least for me. And in particular, I think the the part of his manifesto that is the most uh, interesting to me is his commentary on leftism, because he got to see this develop in Berkeley. He was teaching at Berkeley in the late 1960s, So he saw this really start to take hold in the culture, especially in academia. And his insight into leftism is all the more relevant today as we see it take over most mainstream institutions. So he was able to watch it much earlier in its development, but his observations 
as to the character and patterns inherent in leftism scale up. And he saw leftism as incompatible with nature. He saw it as something of an anti-natural force. While not, being a cons- while not being a conservative himself. And I can't help but see it the same way. Especially seeing the way it plays out in communist countries. The way it's playing out currently in its own form here in the United States. And the way that leftists themselves think that they are the greatest proponents of nature. They seek to control nature. They deeply fear nature. You can see the way they treat climate change. You can see the way they respond to environmental concerns. On one hand, trying to conserve and protect nature, which is beautiful. It's not that I think leftism is wholly bad at all. But there is something anti-natural about it when they gain power and try to maintain power. And he used the word Machiavellian and that's exactly what we're seeing from leftist leaders. They're very Machiavellian. They see everything as a means to power. And the ends justify the means. But the ends don't seem to do what they say they are trying to do. And then they blame their enemy for that. They scapegoat their enemy as... And that's not unique to leftism at all. But the fact that leftism right now has the level of institutional control it has is making so many mistakes, missteps, some of them deliberate, some of them not. And there's a lack of responsibility. So if nothing else, I think you can read what Ted Kaczynski said about leftism and take it to heart. And I know there are people who listen to this show who might not like that. I know there are people, I have friends who would consider themselves leftists, whether they listen to this show or not, who would take offense and strongly disagree with what I've said about leftism, with what Ted Kaczynski said about leftism. But I believe they need to take it to heart the most, not to change their mind, because I'm not out to change anybody's mind ever. I don't believe in trying to change somebody's mind, but I believe they need to at least consider what he had to say, no matter who he was. Because I do see leftism, at least the way it manifests on an institutional and governmental level, I do see it as opposition to nature and defiance of natural processes. And it's hard to it's hard for me to support it's hard for me to support something that I see as not just at odds with nature, but actively trying to defy it and replace it. Because that's what we are seeing now with technology. And as technology, specifically digital technology, 
becomes more and more forceful. And the primary tool of leftist power brokers, we can see where that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to replace nature with technology because technology gives them greater control over people. It gives them greater control over everything. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children